Ramble. Our apartment lease in New York City is almost up, which means it's time for that hunt for the perfect apartment again. And I'm sure everyone can agree to this, but when your apartment takes off all of the boxes, you feel so much happier being home. You look forward to going home. But it is hard. It is hard finding the perfect place, especially in a place like New York. For us, we need to have an in-unit washer and dryer. That is like a non-negotiable. We need to have hardwood floors because of my allergies. And we love any unit facing Southwest. That is golden hour prime time. And since we're not in New York City right now, we've been using Apartments.com to help us find our new home. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all of your specific unique boxes. I love that there's a ton of 3D virtual tours which have come in honestly so handy for us because we're constantly traveling these days. It saves us so much time and money and it's really helpful for if you're moving to a new city. Maybe you're moving to the next town over. Saves you so much time. My favorite feature though is the amenity filters. So you can make sure your possible future home has all of the amenities you need. Like I said, in-unit washer and dryer. But you can even search for units with a balcony so you can enjoy a nice sunrise with your coffee. And once you find a new place that you like, you can even favorite them so they're all neatly organized. I get so excited to apartment hunt every night with my fiance. So visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. Now, when you walk into math class at the University of Santa Barbara in freaking California, I mean, it's so picturesque. The students have their laptops out, their notebooks handy, they're writing things as they go. They might even have towels in their backpack slung across their chair. It's a beach town after all. UCSB is probably one of the most picturesque schools. I mean, how many college students can say that they take finals and then jump into the Pacific Ocean to celebrate? Anyway, all the students were gathered trying to jot down the notes as quickly as possible in math class as the teacher moved around in front with ease, going through the questions, going through the solutions. You would never know that one student in the sea of students was writing something sinister in his notebook. We have the exact writing, so I'm just going to read it to you. A male student wrote about a crush that he had on a girl in math class. He wrote, as the lecture proceeded... I couldn't help myself from constantly glancing at her, admiring every inch of her enticing body, from her silky blonde hair to her smooth, slightly tanned legs. The most beautiful thing about her was her face. It was a face that broke my heart the second that I laid eyes on it. I wanted her with so much intensity, and I constantly fantasized about her during my masturbation sessions. This was the kind of girl who was always meant to be my girlfriend. This was the girl that I was meant to go through college in Santa Barbara with. My life would only have meaning if I could go through college with a girlfriend like her. He went home after class that day and found out her name was Brittany. He starts stalking Brittany on Facebook. He writes, I looked her up on Facebook and what I found shattered my already wounded heart to pieces. She had a boyfriend. Not only that, but her boyfriend was the type of boy that I've always hated and despised. A tall, muscular surfer jock with a buzz cut. As I looked at all the pictures of the two of them together, I shivered with pure hatred. I could physically feel the hatred burn through my entire body. I wanted to kill both of them, and I was capable of doing it. Brittany should have been mine, and if I can't have her, no one should. 
I fantasized about capturing the two of them, stripping the skin off her boyfriend's flesh while making her watch. Why must my life be so full of torment and hatred? If this is not terrifying enough, this guy goes on to murder six people and injure 14 people in a killing spree. And still, what's even more terrifying than that is that there are people out there that reads this guy's writings and they think, this guy is my freaking hero. This guy, this killer, this cold-blooded, disgusting, vile of an excuse of a human is my hero. Like how? Why? Let's do a deep dive into the scary world of incels. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMinglePodcast.com, but a huge source for today's episode is a manifesto written by the killer himself. It's Elliot Rogers' 137-page manifesto that he entitled My Twisted World, The Story of Elliot Rogers by Elliot Roger. I would say take everything he says with a whole container of salt because Elliot was... He was something, and I don't know how to finish that description, but just know that no positive adjectives come to mind when describing just this dumpster fire of a human being. Now, when the crimes first took place, there was a lot of online discourse of how nobody should read the manifesto because it's going to give him the attention that he desperately wants. Normally, I would agree with that sentiment, which is why we don't really cover a lot of mass shooters on here or school shooters on this podcast. But with the conversations of Brian Koberger, the suspected killer of the Idaho 4 University students, and the conversation of incels, it's come to a lot of people's attention that the subculture of incels which stands for involuntary celibate, they have a king, if you will. They have an idol, if you will. And that person that they idolize is Elliot Roger. And he's dead now, so it's not like he even knows that he's getting this attention. A lot of these guys will read his manifesto and actually agree with his manifesto. They agree with the heinous actions and what he wrote. And I say allegedly now because, again... It's not that like I'm like, oh, we don't know if he killed people. No, we know he did. We know he's scum. But we don't know if this is the real reason he killed all those innocent people. Now, what I'm trying to say is there are guys out there reading this, men out there reading it and being like, I like that. I like it a lot. And us not reading it doesn't make it go away. And rather than acting like it doesn't exist, I would rather want to know what they're reading. I would rather want to know what's out there because as a woman, I don't know, it just seems imperative to my own safety. So with that being said, let's get into it. I'm sure we're all familiar with the term incel, and generally speaking, what they stand for. Incel stands for involuntary celibate. These are typically guys that are not having sex because they can't find a partner to have sex with. They're not nuns. They're not Buddhist monks. Whether that be their own lack of trying, of trying to find a sexual partner, or not being a nice person to potential partners, or not putting themselves out there. It's all different per incel. And them becoming incels comes from this deep frustration that they have with their lives. It's probably a mixture of academic failure, career failure, lack of respect from peers, rejection from the opposite gender, feeling emasculated. They've bottled up all of these big, big feelings and put it in a champagne bottle, directed it towards women in particular, and essentially are just popping off. I think the problem with the incel community is that you can't help those that don't want to help themselves. That's like the first quote that comes to mind. When I think of the incel community as a whole, instead of realizing, hey, maybe no, women don't want to sleep with us because we literally hate all women with a fire burning passion and we creep them out with our dripping anger towards them and misogyny. Instead of realizing that, they're like, fuck women because they don't want to have sex with me. Basically, 
I'm not putting down incels feelings. I'm sure there's a lot of pressure, bullying, anxiety, stress, rejection, but it's just such a fascinating way to channel all these feelings towards women. For example, a guy, let's call him Abe. He said that his whole life was practically marred with loneliness and rejection. One of his most vivid memories were of his ninth birthday party. Oh, he was so excited. His parents let him host a party at Chuck E. Cheese, invited the whole class. Not a single person showed up. To make things more depressing, his mom burst into tears because nobody showed up for her son. And while she cried, he's trying to distract himself with arcade games. Later, as an adult, he had a girl best friend. He finally worked up the nerve to ask her out. She said yes. They dated for a while, but soon he found out the whole time she was cheating on him with her ex-boyfriend. And after they broke up, she went and got engaged to that ex-boyfriend. That was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Abe went online trying to find support for everything that he was going through. And instead of ending up on like a relationship subreddit, he ended up finding incel communities on Reddit. And since he's already feeling anger about what happened, I mean, it was so easy for him to fall into these communities and read about how women were these manipulative, validation-seeking creatures. Abe called them emotional tampons. He called all women emotional tampons. What does that even mean? I guess they just suck your emotions out of you. <laughs> what? I, or maybe they're just a tampon that's emotional. Yeah, what does that mean? You're yeah. <laughs> correct. What does that mean? <laughs> but what's crazy is that Abe is actually on the nicer side of the incel community. The original incel community was supposed to be very kind. In fact, the creator of the OG incel forum years and years ago, decades ago, just wanted a forum for people to talk about their shared experiences of getting constant rejection in the dating world. So it was a place to talk to each other about loneliness and how it impacts their lives and just be open. It was open to any gender and everyone would just support each other. But slowly people start breaking off like their own little cults, creating these own forums. And the rhetoric became more and more and more misogynistic. And now most members are predominantly men. The most extreme forums, the incels praise mass killers like Elliot Roger. They even have slang for it. They call it, quote, going ER. That means going Elliot Roger, aka going on a killing spree. They have extreme ones, um, the forums. They encourage each other to go ER. They think pedophilia should be legalized. They think what? that women should go back to being the property of men. They believe that women should be chained up and raped freely. And they believe the prime age for reproduction is 12 years old. They're literally the scum of the earth. The most extreme incels that are. I would like to hope and say that most incels do not fall into this category and this extreme craziness but it, it's hard to say andreas is a 17 year old in denmark and he said that he got sucked into incel forums because he was dumped by his high school girlfriend he was so depressed he's looking for support and he came across a forum that told him that women were evil and he said that he started hating women wholeheartedly hating women he didn't even notice at first but later he realized that he was becoming more and more depressed on these incel forums he literally lost his phone one day and he thought these fucking women and then he was like, wait, that's really bizarre that I just thought that because there's not a woman in my life that could have lost my phone for me. Like I literally lost my phone and his first reaction was fuck woman. He would stay up all night reading post after post, getting angrier and angrier at these hypothetical situations of rejection. These men, most of them aren't even getting rejected in their day-to-day -day life. They create these hypothetical situations and they post about it. And they post about how a hot girl would reject them if they ever tried to talk to her. So bizarre. 
and how these hypothetical evil women would spit in their face if they ever even tried to make conversation with them. He said, getting a dose of the black pill every time you go on, it doesn't feel good in the long run. It just made him more depressed. He said that after he logged off, he's still um, resentful towards women, but he doesn't hate them anymore. I guess uh, a for effort? Great. Thanks, I guess. Another former incel said that incels need more support to steer away from these extremist thoughts. He said incels will join these forums during dark periods of their lives when they're not doing well financially, academically, personally. I mean, they're just depressed and lonely. They don't feel like their lives are going anywhere. So you fall into this community. You don't realize how toxic it is until it's too late. Some people go on to commit murders. Some never leave. Some commit suicide. And some just never get out. And some do. But I guess his questioning is, how did we all get here in the first place? And then there is another user that told media outlets, if you look at my old posts and you can see me say shit like, I don't actually hate women, call me a cuck or whatever, but at the time I believed it. But yeah, no, I hate women now. I wish only for a painful death for as many women as possible and I will go out of my way from now on to make women feel uncomfortable and make their lives hard in general. What's crazy is we don't even know who these incels are in our day-to-day life, who they are in our workplace, in our schools, in our communities. We don't know. Mm, So they're in disguise. They don't show that all the time. No. Look, I think the easiest way for us to understand the incel mindset is not me telling you about it, but reading their thoughts, literally reading their posts. One incel posted a question. You ever see a girl so beautiful, you become enraged knowing you'll never be able to fuck her? A commentator wrote back, happens to me. I literally want to destroy things when I see an exceptionally beautiful girl. No one should be that good looking. They should be made ugly. It sounds like straight up satire. Like they're dead serious though. Another commenter wrote, yes, in fact, on the rare occasion I see a 10 out of 10 girl, I wish her face would get slashed so that she would be forced off her pedestal and have to come back down to earth. Another alarming comment reads, whenever I see them, I imagine riddling their bodies with hollow points and mangling their corpses. Yeah, okay. So I translated the 10 out of 10 girl, but it's actually written 10 out of 10 Stacy. So you're probably going to wonder, what's a 10 out of 10 Stacy? Let me fill you in on incel lingo. A gigachad is used to refer to an extremely muscular man that women lust after. These are like the creme de la creme of society of conventional men, conventionally attractive men. Chad is conventionally attractive, but he's not like extremely muscular. Incels believe that 20% of the male population are chads and 80% of women are only interested in chads. They also have racist names. I feel like isn't chad is like a negative term for men? Yeah, except for incels, I guess. But they, I mean, they hate chads. So, but when I think chad, I think like meatball with no thoughts. Yeah, Chads. Yeah. yeah. But they also have racist name for Chad, um, people of color. So a black Chad, they call him Tyrone. An East Asian Chad, they call him Chang. A South Asian Chad, they call him Chadpreet. An Arab Chad, they call them Chadam. Yeah, what the fuck? Wow. Stacy stands for a conventionally attractive woman. Becky is a physically plain woman. She's not attractive. They'll usually have sex with betas. Beta being beta males. It's underneath Chad. It's underneath the alpha males. They're either cucks or normies. They're just normal dudes. And at the bottom of the male food chain are incels, who not even Beckys will touch incels. The black pill is a fatalistic idea that an incel cannot improve their own situation, that they should just accept their fate and stop trying, and their fate is to be unattractive, unhealthy, and have no social status. 
The red pill is waking up from the normal life of ignorance and seeing the world for what it really is, which is a... Incels think that they see the world for what it really is. They think that feminism is the end of the world. Blue pill, a person who lives a conventional life unaware of the man's oppression by woman. How's the blue pill, babe? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, looks max is using money, possession, exercise, plastic surgery to try and maximize attractiveness. And then there's something just called LDAR. It's lie down and rot, indicating that there is no hope for incels. And then there's going ER, going Elliot Roger, aka going on a killing spree. And then what do they call women? You'll often see the term foid. It's a shortened word for what incels use to refer to all women, and it's very dehumanizing. They are calling women female humanoids. It's used to indicate that women aren't fully human, that they're subhuman. They are, they're just animals. Often incels will refer to women as it's. One incel wrote, the most ridiculous thing is that everybody has it backwards. Masculinity is good and femininity is bad. The only toxic thing is feminist. Masculinity built the fucking world. Femininity sat in a pool of its own blood till masculinity invented the fucking tampon. Femininity is throwing literal tantrums with tears over the pettiest shit as opposed to sucking it up and not crying like a child. Anyway, the poster goes on to rant about what masculinity is and what femininity is, and he ends it with, femininity is lying about everything, in particular, feigning non-superficiality by lying about what attracted you to your boyfriend or husband, and claiming looks don't matter. Another one reads, and this one is a trip, so hold on, okay, I'm shortening it for length. For thousands of years, foids have been property that have been bought and sold and bartered for. They were the spoils of war and conquest. Even today, a female doesn't retain her family name. She takes the name and identity of her husband. Like when they were captured from one tribe to another, they became a part of the conquering tribe. Wanting complete control over a female without needing to take her or her family's desires into account is a natural and healthy male desire, and one that can only be fully satisfied with a sexual slave. While it's not the responsibility of society to satisfy every male desire, it should be society's responsibility to make sure that all men who are willing to acquire the necessary resources have every opportunity to satisfy their legitimate desires. And there should be no laws or regulations preventing the emergence of markets where foids can be bought and sold. For as long as there are no legal ways to obtain sex slaves, no one should blame any man for raping or kidnapping females. Side note, this whole thing is ironic because incels want to revert back to the medieval ages where women were property of their husbands and you can conquer a new city and take all the women as sex slaves. But a lot of people point out, hey incel, going back in time isn't going to change your standing in the hierarchy. Do you think that you're going to be the lead soldier all of a sudden? That's going to be the Giga Chad. That's going to be the Giga Chad today? In the medieval ages, he's going to be the one conquering and raping and pillaging villages. Not you. You'll probably die of like, I don't know, the bubonic plague, if we're being honest. It's not like suddenly incels will become warriors back in the day. Like, it's very bizarre thinking to go into that. Literally nothing would change. But the poster continues. Today's men, they pander to pussy at the cost of turning into little cucks. They are taught the worst thing to do which is prioritize and submit to foids. Submission is another form of slavery. Submission is to an authority. If you submit, you are less than the foid you are submitting to and whose feelings and desires you are prioritizing over your own. 
Because men are no longer allowed to have sex with voids without their consent, it is becoming harder and harder for all men to get sex. And it explains why every generation of men since the 60s has had less sex than average than the previous one. Men compete with other men for an ever-dwindling pool of available pussy. The best solution is to restore the patriarchy and make females the property of their fathers. Among other social benefits, men could now breed voids for desirable traits like submissiveness and beauty. We could change the gender ratio so that there will be more than one void per man. Most voids have lots of undesirable psychological traits today that make them very difficult to deal with, and those traits should be bred out of them. Right now, we have a complete inversion of the natural order. For most of human history, the norm was for men to dominate and control voids, and it was considered shameful to want to submit to voids. Someone commented to this post, Why are women so choosy? I'm tired of being a virgin. It's been 45 years now. The original poster goes on to allege that the only reason femoids are terrified at the idea of sexual slavery is not because they would have to be a sex slave to a hot Viking warlord Chad or Genghis Khan. That's what they wrote, okay? But because they would have to have sex with ugly guys. Basically, He's saying that women are so superficial, it's not that slavery, human trafficking, kidnapping, and all the immeasurable implications to the woman's mental and physical health and the violation of losing her right to say no. It's not the PTSD that women are terrified of. It's the idea of having sex with an ugly guy. He said, a life without sex and intimacy is far more harmful to average men than a life of sex slavery to an average femoid. He continues, Foids have evolved to cope with being rape slaves, even though they will have you believe otherwise. Being a sex slave to an ugly male is not the worst thing to happen to foids. Even if it were, there's absolutely no reason for you to take their feelings into account. Your ancestors took whatever female they could get by whatever means possible, including rape and slavery. If they hadn't, you wouldn't have been born as your bloodline would have ended thousands of years ago. Another incel wrote that Tinder and social media is worse than Hitler and that incels are the new victims of the new wave holocaust that has been created by chads and social media. So yeah, a lot of blame on women for just purely existing. And this one incel poster had a different take. He blamed men. He blamed specifically the fathers of daughters. He wrote, ironically, it's the fathers of daughters that are keeping us from rolling back on feminism. Not only do these fathers cuck out to women because they're always like, my wife and my daughter. They create more entitled cunts by treating their daughters like princesses and complying to their every wish. Now every single woman expects to be treated like a princess as a minimum requirement. These dads are the most insufferable cucks ever, always treating their own daughters like fucking queens, like their shit don't stink. No wonder so many girls are such fucking entitled cunty bitches. They're all daddy's little princesses. I hate it. It almost makes you wonder if they're in some sort of incestuous relationship or something, since nowadays all these thoughts like to say daddy during sex. But like, how would you know, incel? No offense. How would you know? These are really um the aggressive ones, but other forms of incel and inceldom come disguised. This is like the new wave of incels. They come disguised as men having conversations about dating, bros and their podcast mics, and how to be high-value men. The connection between that and incels, it's like a clear line. It's, I think, not even one step behind. It's probably like one inch to the right, and you're an incel. Sidebar, if you ever hear a guy call himself a high-value man, you better run for the hills because you are so close to danger, it's terrifying. A TikTok user posted a, a mind-numbingly dumb question, and they asked, do you fellow men think makeup is a form of lying in a relationship? 
He also posted, women be like, I deserve a $9,000 ring and a $50,000 wedding and all she has to offer is pre-owned pussy. Another TikTok user talks about what woman, what wall woman were. Do you know what post wall means? No. Oh my God. If you ever see this in the comments, I would punch someone. Post wall is a saying for women who have passed their fertility window and have become unattractive to men. After women hit, hit 35 years old, they are basically what they call a quote, post wall woman. It's like they hit a wall at full speed and their face got all messed up. That's the definition. So woman above 35 is post wall. Okay. Yeah, but a lot of guys what's I the see, point? they've what? been born post-wall. Yeah, what's the point about that? Like, so a lot it. of incels think that uh, women are the most attractive when they're like maybe 18. Some of them think 15, 14. It's like very nasty. They, th- I think they just associate like medieval times as the natural order of humans. Okay, go shit in the woods, Kevin. Go shit in the woods and don't use your phone to post on social media because that didn't exist in the medieval times. And don't take an Advil every time you have a headache from staring at your screen too long. Okay? It's just like, you know, the TikToks of the guys in their mics. Like, why do they all have podcasts? They're basically spouting the same incel ideologies. It's just packaged a little differently. They are incels in alpha male costumes. One TikToker said, when you're a single mother, you're on your own. Your sexual market value has deteriorated dramatically. I mean, you opened up your legs to him. The sheer lack of accountability some of you women have is astounding. The same user said, if you're a high-flying woman and you have a successful career, men don't care. Your master's, your PhD, your CEO title, we literally don't give a damn. We don't value it. If the market of men doesn't value it, don't bring it to the table. Don't bring it to the relationship expecting brownie points. Another gem. I'm a man. I'm a leader. I'm the toxic asshole guy, right? I'm the tool, right? Because when we go out, you expect me to take care of you, though. So when I tell you to do something, do it. (laughs) When you're taking care of my Chipotle order, like, calm down. (laughs) And another one. Women are like used cars. You lose 30% of your value when you drive it off the lot. (laughs) These are are incels disguised as alpha men, high value men. I mean, okay, I'm not saying that there should be open discourse about the relationship between men and women and how to be a better partner and how to find someone that you really are attracted to and you click with and you can build a life together. That's not what I'm saying, but this is like just misogyny covered up in like a weird TikTok video. They're the ones that say things like, if my wife doesn't bounce back after giving birth, I'm allowed to cheat. A man has needs. Which side note, sex is not a need. Like you're going to plop dead if I take away your oxygen. You're going to plop dead if I take away your food and water. You're not going to plop dead if I take away all your sexual activity and satisfaction. And guess what? That is proven by a large group of incels out there. They're still alive. So saying men have needs is very bizarre to me, especially when it comes to the fact of cheating. Like you are just displaying that you have not mastered yourself. You lack critical thinking skills. You have low self-control. It's not because you're this alpha male caveman. It's because you're kind of dumb and emotional and maybe you have pretty low EQ and maybe you're not fit to be in positions of power when you can't even control yourself in a sexual setting. I don't know. If you really care for men's needs, why don't these men go fight for clean water and food around the world? Your brethren are out there dying from not having their needs of clean water and food fulfilled. They're not dying from lack of sex. I'm just saying. 
Now, does this mean that all incels are violent? I tried to find studies on this, and a lot of experts say that it's hard to give a definitive answer. Those who have joined an online forum where others are inciting violence, I mean, they might have already been violent to begin with. How much of it is already there? How much of it is incited by other incels? It's hard to say. But one thing is for sure, decades of research has shown that who you affiliate with does shape your behavior in all sorts of ways. But this is terrifying because a recent report found that an incel forum, one of the most popular, is visited nearly two, by 2.6 million different people every month. And uh, why do some of them praise a mass murderer? Well, they agree with his idea of a perfect society. And I'm going to read it to you. And it's alarming, so just be warned. Elliot Roger was a college student at UCSB when he planned what he called the Day of Retribution. He wrote... It'll be a day in which I exact my ultimate retribution and revenge on all the hedonistic scum who enjoyed lives of pleasure that they don't deserve. If I can't have it, I'll destroy it. I will destroy all women because I can never have them. I will make them suffer for rejecting me. I will arm myself with deadly weapons and wage a war against all women and the men that they are attracted to. I will slaughter them like the animals that they are. If they won't accept me among them, then they are my enemies." They showed me no mercy, and in turn, I will show them no mercy. The prospect will be so sweet, and justice will ultimately be served. And of course, I'll have to die in the act to avoid going to prison. But my hatred and rage towards all women festered inside me like a plague. Their very existence is the cause of all my torture, pain, and suffering throughout my life. My life turned into a living hell after I started desiring women when I hit puberty. I desired them so intensely, but I could never have them. I could never have the experience of holding hands with a beautiful girl and walking on a moonlit beach. I could never embrace a girlfriend and feel her warmth and love. I could never have passionate sex with a girl and drift off to sleep with her sexy body beside me. Women have deemed me unworthy of having them, and they have deprived me of an enjoyable youth while giving their love and sex to other boys. In all those years, I suffered a life of sexual starvation and unfulfilled desires. I will never get those years back. My life has been wasted all because women hate me so much. All I had ever wanted was to love women, but their behavior has only earned my hatred. I want to have sex with them. I want to make women feel good, but they would be disgusted at the idea. They have no sexual attraction towards me. And it's such an injustice. And I vehemently question, why do things have to be this way? Why do women behave like vicious, stupid, cruel animals who take delight in my suffering? Why do they have a perverted sexual attraction for the most brutish of men instead of gentlemen of intelligence? Women are flawed. There is something mentally wrong with the way that their brains are wired, as if they haven't evolved from animal-like thinking. They are incapable of reason or thinking rationally. They are like animals, just completely controlled by their primal, depraved emotions and impulses. That is why they're attracted to barbaric, barbaric, wild, beast-like men. They are beasts themselves. Beasts should not be able to have any rights in a civilized society. If their wickedness is not contained, the whole of humanity will be held back from advancement to a more civilized state. Women should not have the right to choose who they mate with. The choice should be made for them by civilized men of intelligence. If women had the freedom to choose who they mate with like they do today, they will breed with stupid, degenerate men who will only produce more stupid, degenerate offspring. 
This in turn is going to hinder the advancement of humanity. Not only is it going to hinder it, but devolve humanity completely. Women are like a plague. They need to be quarantined. When I came to this brilliant, perfect revelation, I felt like everything was now clear to me in a bitter, twisted way. I am one of the few people in this world who have the intelligence to see this. I'm like a god, and my purpose is to exact ultimate retribution on all the impurities I see in the world. I have nothing left to live for but revenge. Women must be punished for their crimes of rejecting such a magnificent gentleman as myself. All those popular boys must be punished for enjoying heavenly lives and having sex with the, all the girls while I had to suffer in lonely virginity. I will be a god, and they will all be animals that I can slaughter. They are animals. They behave like animals, and I will slaughter them like the animals they are. There are three parts, three phases to the day of retribution. Phase one. The day before retribution, he will try to kill as many people as quietly in the town of Isla Vista in Santa Barbara. His plan was to lure roommates and dorm mates and college students into his apartment, knock them out with a hammer, and slit their throats. He wanted to pile bodies up in his apartment. He wrote that he wanted to torture the good-looking people before he kills them because he assumes the good-looking ones had the best sex lives. All the pleasure that they had in, had in life, I will punish by bringing them pain and suffering. I have lived a life of pain and suffering, and it's time to bring that pain to people who actually deserve it. He said that he will cut them, fillet them, strip the skin off their flesh, and pour boiling water all over them while they are still alive with all these cuts and bruises and holes in their body. He thinks any form of torture he can possibly think of is what he will exact on them. He said that he will behead them and keep all of their heads in a bag. He's going to do something with these heads. So the first phase is to kill all these men who have had pleasurable sex lives while he has meant to suffer. The second phase is the actual war on women, the day of retribution. He claims that he will go to the hottest sorority at UCSB, Alpha Phi sorority. He says, I cannot kill every single female on earth, but I can deliver a devastating blow that will shake all of them to the core of their wicked hearts. I will attack the very girls who represent everything I hate in the female gender, the hottest sorority of UCSB. He said that he's already stalked them, and it's full of hot, beautiful, blonde girls, the kind of girls that he's always desired, but has never been able to have because they all look down on him. He said that they're all spoiled, heartless, wicked bitches, and they think that they're all superior to him. He said, if I ever tried to ask one on a date, they would reject me cruelly. He doesn't even know. He said that he's going to sneak into the sorority house and slaughter every single one of them with guns and knives. He says, if I have time, I will set their whole house on fire and they will see who the superior one really is. So he said that he's going to decapitate all these hot men and all these hot girls and he's going to take all the decapitated heads and drop them off at other sorority houses. So he can't kill all the sorority sisters, but he wants to traumatize all of them. And then phase three was to just wreak havoc on the streets of Isla Vista. He says that he's going to drive around killing everybody, and then ultimately he's going to drive to his father's house and kill his own little brother. His brother loves him, but Elliot wanted to kill him because he felt like his brother was going to grow up to be a Chad. What? His brother was going to grow up to surpass Elliot and to have women and to have sex and to not be a virgin. And then at the end... He said that he will swallow all the Xanax and Vicodin that he had stored up and then shoot himself in the head. He believed that if the bullet didn't kill him, the pills would. 
Elliot went on to post YouTube videos, and all of this had been taken down, but he talked about how all of this could have been pre prevented if just one girl had dated him. He pondered why any girl wouldn't want him when he was the true magnificent gentleman worthy of a beautiful girlfriend. He talked about how he hated all men who had sex with these girls. And at the end of the manifesto, he wrote, I am not part of the human race. Humanity has rejected me. The females of the human species have never wanted to mate with me, so how could I possibly consider myself a part of humanity? Humanity has never accepted me among them, and now I know why. I am more than human. I am superior to them all. I am Elliot Roger, magnificent, glorious, supreme, eminent, divine. I am the closest thing there is to a living God. Humanity is a disgusting, depraved, evil species. It is my purpose to punish them all. I will purify the world of everything that is wrong. On the day of retribution, I will truly be a powerful God, punishing everyone I deem to be impure and depraved. He said, sex is by far the most evil concept in existence. The fact that life itself exists through sex just proves that life is flawed. The act of sex gives human beings a tremendous amount of pleasure, pleasure that they do not deserve. No one deserves to experience so much pleasure, especially since some humans get to experience it while some are denied it. When a man has sex with a beautiful woman, he probably feels like he's in heaven. But the world is not supposed to feel like heaven. The ultimate evil behind sexuality, though, is the human female. They are the main instigators of sex. They control which men get it and which don't. Women are flawed creatures, and my mistreatment at their hands have made me realize that this is the sad truth. There is something very twisted and wrong with the way that their brains are wired. They're like beasts. The most beautiful women choose to mate with the most brutal of men instead of magnificent gentlemen like myself. Women have more power in human society than they deserve, all because of sex. There is no creature more evil and depraved than the human female. Women are like the plague. They don't deserve to have rights. Their wickedness must be contained in order to prevent future generations from falling to degeneracy. He created the perfect ideology of how a pure and fair world would work. In an ideal world, he said that men will grow up fair and equal because no man will be able to experience sex. Sex will be outlawed. In order to completely abolish sex, women themselves are going to be abolished. All women must be quarantined like the plague that they are. And in order to carry this out, they must exist in a new powerful type of government under the control of one divine ruler such as himself. He sinisterly writes, and this is the creepy part. At the disposal of this ruler, there needs to be a highly trained army of fanatically loyal troops. Mm, all the incels? Yeah, or the ones that believe in Elliot Roger being some sort of idol. The first strike against women is to put them in concentration camps. At these camps, the vast majority of female populations should be deliberately starved to death. That would be efficient and a fitting way to kill them all off. I would take great pleasure and satisfaction in condemning every single woman on earth to starve to death. I would have an enormous tower built just for myself where I can oversee the entire concentration camp and gleefully watch them all die. If I can't have them, no one will. Women represent everything that is unfair in this world, and they must be eradicated. A few women will be spared, however, for the sake of reproduction. These women would be kept and bred in secret labs, and they will be artificially inseminated with sperm samples in order to produce offspring. Their depraved nature will slowly be bred out of them. Future generations of men would be oblivious to these remaining women's existence, and that is for the best. If men grow up without knowing the existence of women, there will be no desire for sex. Sexuality. <laughs> I feel like he just completely forgot about, like, I don't know, 
the fact that men will have sex with other men. Men like to have sex with other men. You know, there's gay men. There's bisexual men. But he's like, nope, sexuality will be eradicated. Not that smart, would I say. Love will cease to exist. Okay. There will no longer be any imprint of such concepts in the human psyche. It is the only way to purify the world. In a pure world, the man's mind can develop to greater heights than ever before. Future generations will live lives free of having to worry about the barbarity of sex and women. And it will expand their intelligence. And it will advance the human race to a state of perfect civilization. And there's people who think he's smart. Yeah. So that is his idea of a perfect world. And the fact that people read this and think, that guy, that guy's my hero, is one of the most unsettling, terrifying things that I have ever read. So let me introduce you into the twisted world of Elliot Roger. He starts it with humanity. All of my suffering on this world has been at the hands of humanity, particularly women. This is the story of how I, Elliot Roger, came to be. This is the story of my entire life. It's a dark story of sadness, anger, hatred. It is a story of war against cruel injustice. In this magnificent story, I'll disclose every detail of my life, every single significant experience that I have pulled from my superior memory, as well as how those experiences have shaped my views on the world. This tragedy did not have to happen. I didn't want things to turn out this way, but humanity forced my hand, and this story will explain why. This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate, I wrap up in my coziest blanket, and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June, and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging. And that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. 
I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees, even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters. Especially the wife, Nina, she just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something, and Millie is hiding something, and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to, and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try Audible. Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500. That's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Part one, a blissful beginning. Elliot's first five years of life, according to him, were blissful. You know, he was born in England to his father, Peter Roger, and his mother, Lee Chin. So his dad, Peter Roger, is an interesting character. He actually was a pretty posh, fancy guy. He was a descendant from an old money family. All the family members had ties to the film industry, but a lot of the newer generations had lost most of their wealth. Elliot's grandfather, George Roger, so Peter's dad, he was a renowned photojournalist during the Second World War. Peter's dad is a known filmmaker and photographer. And Peter himself has a 2009 documentary released called Oh My God. And he also worked as a second unit director on The Hunger Games in 2012. So Elliot's parents, they did pretty well for themselves. And Elliot's mom was also in the film industry. So Lee Chen, she was born in Malaysia, moved to England at a young age, and she primarily worked as a nurse on movie sets. She had a lot of friends in the industry. She was like a beloved figure on set. Um, someone that just seemed to get along with everyone. Some notable names that she was on friendly terms with were Steven Spielberg, which like household name, a total filmmaking powerhouse. I don't even know what to say he's known for. Jurassic World, E.T., West Side Story, Schindler's List, Jaws, Ready Player One. I don't know. Lee was friends with him and also the notable George Lucas, known for Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Elliot's mom actually dated George Lucas for a period of time, allegedly, which Elliot was weirdly proud of the fact that his mom had dated George Lucas prior to marrying his dad. (laughs) I don't know why. He bragged about how his mom was still friends with George Lucas, which again, the whole thing is strange. Elliot would always brag to his friends about how he would attend Star Wars premieres It was kind of um, counterintuitive because he thought it was cool, but this was during a time where Star Wars was not cool. So it kind of had the opposite effect of what he anticipated. Now, I don't know how Elliot's parents met. Maybe on set, maybe mutual friends. It's unclear. But they were in their 20s. They meet, get married, and even though Lee is on the pill, she falls pregnant. Elliot is conceived, and he was born in London. And shortly after the surprise pregnancy, the couple decide to move from London to the countryside so that they can have this massive house and some fresh air. And Elliot grew up in this big red brick house surrounded by open fields. I mean, he's living the life. It's crazy because his whole manifesto, he complains and complains and complains, and he genuinely is living such an uber-privileged life. 
it's very like woe is me victim mentality. He mentions in his manifesto copious amounts of times that he had spent the first five years of his life living in a mansion and traveling around the world. Copious amounts of times he mentioned that just as he was five years old, he had already visited France, Spain, Greece, Malaysia, and the United States. He had written, at the age of four, I, Elliot Roger, had already been to six different countries. Who can claim that, eh? He was really into it. He's the type of kid to develop an accent after going to France for two weeks during summer break. Yeah, that's the type of kid. He's the type to be like, bonjour. I mean, sorry. You idiots say hello over here, right? You're like, you were gone for like seven days, bro. Elliot said that this time in his life was filled with bliss and pure happiness. Lee was a stay-at-home mom. She quit her job. Peter was busy working, but when he was home... All attention was on Elliot. There was no shortage of love and money for Elliot. He had everything that a kid would want and more. And he became very entitled. His first recollection was of his third memory. He said, My parents threw a party for me in our field. I had a helicopter birthday cake and I can remember one of my friends cutting off the first piece of my cake and giving it to my friend. I threw a tantrum because I was expecting to get the first piece. It was my birthday after all. So entitled since day one. Yeah, like a brat. And if you think I'm prejudging, hold on, because there's another story that kind of shows that he was very entitled. For preschool, he went to this upscale, all boys, like a private school on the countryside, and he hated that they had to wear a uniform. But more than that, he hated that during school picture day, all the boys would have to sit on these chairs in the gymnasium and they would have to sit cross-legged for the picture. He's like, cross-legged? I have beef with that pose. He didn't say that, but like for some reason he hates cross-leg sitting. He put up a fight and he argued and argued until the teachers finally gave in and Elliot was the only one that didn't sit cross-legged because he was special and everyone had to know it. And to Elliot's surprise, he did not have to sit cross-legged much longer because Peter's film career was taken off and the family makes the big decision to immigrate to the United States, to sunny California. Shortly before the move, the family introduced another child into the family, a daughter. Elliot was not too pleased. He said that the night that his mother went into labor, he was sick, he was ill, he was throwing up, which he considered a, quote, bad omen. <laughs> like, okay, kid. The Rogers packed up their bags, and the four of them, they moved to this upscale neighborhood in uh, Woodland Hills in Los Angeles. And this is where we enter part two, growing up in America, age five through nine. At first, Elliot was living the dream. The house is beautiful, nicely furnished. They have their own private pool. And slowly, Elliot starts watching more and more American shows. He even developed an American accent. In kindergarten, Elliot starts making loads of friends. And he's just enjoying life to the fullest, like any little kid. He even had a best friend, Maddie Humphreys. The two of them would have these playdates together all the time where they would f watch their favorite movie over and over. And they were really close. Even the Humphreys and the Roger parents, they became friends. And even after kindergarten, Maddie and Elliot would stay close. Maddie was Elliot's first female friend. And the last, according to Elliot. He said, I was five years old, playing with a girl my own age like any normal boy would. I was enjoying life in a world that I loved. I was happy, completely oblivious to the fact that my future in this world would only turn to darkness and misery because of girls. This girl who is my best friend, Maddie Humphreys, would eventually become everything that I hate and despise, everything that is against me and everything that I am against. I was playing innocently with this girl in a manner that only children would play. We would even take baths together. It was the only time in my life that I would see a girl my age naked. 
Sometimes when I went to her house, she would have other female friends there, and I played with them too. I had no trouble interacting with girls at that age. Surprisingly, my six-year-old self was playing with girls unbeknownst to the horror and misery the female gender would inflict upon me later in life. At that time, we were equals. In present day, these girls would treat me like scum of the earth. Such bitter irony. We all start out innocent, and we all start out together. Only through the experiences and circumstances of growing up do we drift apart, form allegiances, and face each other as enemies. That is when the wars happen. At this stage of my life, of course, my war hadn't started yet. And it wouldn't start for a very long time. I was enjoying my life without a care in the world. Okay, this is really loaded and really intense, and I've thankfully never come across anyone who reads so much into innocent childhood friendships like this. Like, it is so unsettling, and I don't know what happened, but something was definitely wrong with Elliot. Even as early as kindergarten, Elliot wrote about how he had mortal enemies. They were always other guys, but they were mortal enemies, and he hated them, like despised them. He felt intense satisfaction for getting revenge on these mortal enemies. When Elliot was six years old, his parents took him to Universal Studios and he just was so obsessed with Jurassic Park. Maybe it has to do with George Lucas or was it Steven Spielberg? Regardless, he's obsessed with Jurassic Park. He's all pumped up for it and even waited in line for nearly an hour. And right at the front of the Jurassic Park ride, the anticipation slowly had built up and he's like literally bubbling. He's jumping up and down. He sees the seat on the ride that he wants and the park staff are like, whoa, 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 whoa. we need to measure you real quick. Turns out, Elliot was not tall enough for the ride. And when he found out at the front of the line, he threw a tantrum, scream crying. It was intense. Now, this I understand. He's six years old. Why did he wait an hour? Why didn't they have it at the front of the line before you get in the line? But he said that he vividly remembered all the other boys his age getting to pass him and get on the ride. And it would strike a chord with him that would stay with him for the rest of his life. Was that he was a short king. He said that, you know, being denied entry into this ride might seem like a small injustice, but it was a big, big injustice to him. He said, um, all the things he'll be denied in the future because of his height started here. Look, I know we haven't gotten really intense yet, but this guy really scares me. I don't know why. Just very bad kind of chills I get from this person. The injustice of what Elliot went through at the amusement park. I'm sure in his mind it was huge, but everything else in his life seemed to be going okay. Peter's film career has taken off to the point where the Rogers, they keep upgrading to bigger homes in LA with swimming pools, overlooking Santa Monica Mountains. Like, they're living the dream. Elliot was very, very proud of his father, whom he always referred to as powerful and successful. And for a while, the family basked in that success. But it was in the this big house where Elliot would overhear screaming matches between his father and mother more often than not. When he was seven years old, they finally divorced and um, they were going to share custody. Elliot would be with his mom one week, then his dad one week. Elliot's mom moved into her own place, which was this small two-bedroom house. Elliot mentions it was the smallest house he had ever lived in in his whole life. It was so small he had to share a bedroom with his little sister, but it was fine because he loved his mom. Meanwhile, even though dad's house was big and great and, you know, massive, it was huge, it just felt empty without the whole family together anymore. And Peter started dating very quickly soon after the divorce. Elliot was shocked. A new woman moved into Peter's house and tried to help parent the kids. Her name was Samaya and she was a Moroccan actress. And Elliot had a very, very, very strange reaction to having a new stepmom so quickly. Um, he said, Father finding a new girlfriend in such a short amount of time baffled me. I was completely taken aback. 
Because of my father's acquisition of a new girlfriend, my little mind got the impression that my father was a man that women found attractive, as he was able to find a new girlfriend in such a short period of time from divorcing my mother. I subconsciously held him in higher regard because of this. It is very interesting how this phenomenon works, that males who can easily find female mates garner more respect from their fellow men, even children. How ironic is it that my father, one of these men, could easily find a girlfriend, has a son who would struggle all his life to find a girlfriend. Look, if that's not a bizarre reaction, I don't know what it is. Like, it's just very strange. Though he admired his dad for being the type of man that women flock to, he very much hated Samaya as a mom or as a person in general. He really only referred to her as my dad's new girlfriend or the woman living with us. He refused to accept her as a mother figure, literally hated her, claimed that he would, she would punish him harshly for all these random things like making him drink milk every morning. And she would always make these soups that were probably very healthy for him, but he said that they were very foul-tasting. And he made such a fuss about the soups that she would force him to drink the soups. Elliot began to dread spending time at his dad's house because of his stepmom. Sometimes he would even cry after he was dropped off. Peter was not having it. Peter was like, you know what? You're going to bond with this new woman because this is the new woman in my life. So you're going to go on a six-week trip vacation to Morocco to visit Salmaya's family. Elliot was not too fond of this trip. He called Moroccan culture, quote, backwards. Very racist kid. But he liked that Salmaya's father had this big castle that was famous for being a location where a scene from James Bond was filmed. Elliot thought that that was cool, but nothing else. Then at age nine, Elliot said, came another turning point in his relationship in his whole life. He talked about how he felt just very jealous and insecure by nature. Like, he admits that himself. He was a very jealous person. And it was at nine years old that he starts realizing that there are relationships in society and there's, like, this hierarchy. In school, there's the cool kids, the kids who hold the power, the kids at the top of the social ladder. And to his dismay and pure shock, he's like, I'm not one of those kids. What the fuck? He wrote, the time of fair play was at its end. Life is a competition and a struggle, and I was slowly starting to realize it. Bro, you're like nine. Calm down. It gets so much worse in your 20s. Wow. He suspected that he was at the bottom of the food chain because of his height. He felt inferior because he was the shortest kid in the fourth grade. Even girls were taller than him. Even younger kids in the third grade were taller than him. He wrote about how so annoyed he was with this. He felt like the taller boys were automatically respected more. And this instilled great feelings of inferiority inside of him. And those feelings would only get more volatile over time. Elliot tried a lot of different things to try and grow taller, as well as try and grow in popularity. He heard someone say that basketball makes you t taller, so he tried that. But he ended up getting discouraged because, well, everyone was already taller than him, and he ended up sucking. <laughs> so, yeah, he said, and I quote, it vexed me to no end. There was another thing that bothered, bothered Elliot about himself. Yes, height was the reason that he wasn't a cool kid, but also he hated the fact that he was half Asian. He said he did not fit in with fully white kids that he was trying to hang out with because he wasn't like them. So in an attempt to fit in more with the fully white kids, he decides to dye his hair. And like, this guy is so dramatic. I don't even know how to describe him, but like emotional, unhinged, dramatic. This is what he says about his whole dyeing his hair experience. 
My first act was to ask my parents to allow me to bleach my hair blonde. I always envied and admired blonde-haired people. They always seemed so much more beautiful. My parents agreed to let me do it, and my father took me to a hair salon in Woodland Hills. Choosing that hair salon was a bad decision, for they only bleached the top of my head blonde. When I indignantly questioned why they didn't make all of my hair blonde, they said I was too young for a full bleaching. I was furious. I thought I looked so silly with blonde hair at the top of my head and black hair at the sides and back. I dreaded going to school the next day with this weird new hair. When I arrived at school the next day, I was intensely nervous. Before class started, I stood in a corner frantically trying to figure out how I would go about revealing this to everyone. Trevor was the first one to notice my hair, and he came up to me and patted my head and said it was very cool. Well, that was exactly what I wanted. My new hair turned out to be quite a skeptical, and for a few days, I got a hint of the attention and admiration I so craved. Okay, he sounds so completely deranged, if I'm being honest with you, like, this terrifies me to no end. I don't even know what to say. And there definitely was something going on with Elliot, because even his parents are like, you need to go see a child therapist. At eight years old, they take him to see a child therapist. Clearly, he was displaying some concerning behavior. A Roger family attorney would later say that Elliot was never formally diagnosed with a mental illness, but other sources say that the same family attorney had claimed that he was diagnosed with Asperger's. But I don't know. A lot of people do believe that he was a narcissist just by reading his manifesto. I mean, I don't know if that's really hard to diagnose. Part 3. The Last Period of Contentment, ages 9 through 13. There are a few random incidents that apparently stand out to Elliot. Memories that seem to just rush back into his mind about how hard he tried to fit in and how miserable his life was becoming. One incident was a party that he attended with his dad. He remembered his dad was talking to one of these like random middle-aged men at this party, and he doesn't even remember the name of the man, but he clearly remembers this conversation. So he says, you know, father was discussing with this man how I had just turned 10 years old, and we discussed life and what the future had in store for me. This man we were talking to pats me on the back, and he told me, you have a great life ahead of you. With a grin on his face, he told me, and I quote, in the next 10 years, you'll have a great time. A great time. I had no idea what he meant by that. I wasn't even thinking about my future at that point. I was nine. I was living in the moment. Now I know what he meant. Childhood is fun, but when a boy reaches puberty, a whole new world opens up to him. A whole new world with new pleasures such as sex and love. Other boys will experience this, but not me. That is the basis of my tragic life. I will not have a great time in the next ten years. The pleasures of sex and love will be denied to me. Other boys will experience it, but not me. Instead, I will only experience misery, rejection, loneliness, and pain. Elliot continued his unwavering obsession with being this cool kid. In fifth grade, he even starts getting into skateboarding because he felt like being a skater kid was cool. He adopted this whole new persona. He asked his mom to buy him all these new skater clothes. He even refused to visit his dad's house because he didn't have, and I quote, cool clothes there. He thought that he showed when he showed up at school with his new skater clothes, he would be met with cheers and applause and praise from the cool kids. He was bitterly let down when nobody seemed to give a fork about his new clothes. What's interesting is that Elliot never felt accepted and he writes as if he's this bullied, tortured soul that he's just not like other kids. But the truth is, Elliot had friends. Yeah, no one hated or even bullied Elliot. He was just a normal average kid. He wasn't a popular kid, but he wasn't the outcast. And I'm not trying to undermine his experience or his own feelings, but like objectively speaking, he really did not have it hard. 
He, he just absolutely despised the idea of being an average kid. I mean, just listen to the reason he gave up skateboarding. I had been trying very hard to get better at skateboarding, but when I saw that there were boys a lot younger than me who could do more tricks, I realized that I sucked. I was never good at sports or any physical activity, and when I discovered skateboarding, I thought that I finally had something that I could excel in and maybe even become a professional at. It crushed me to see that I was a failure at skateboarding. After more than a year of practicing it, I could never master the kickflip or heel flip. It just made me so angry. Why did I fail at everything I tried, I asked myself. My dreams of becoming a professional skateboarder were over. I felt defeated. Just really bizarre. It also seems like he doesn't do anything out of passion or interest. It seems like he wants to be better at something than other people. And he seems like he just wants to be popular. Like that's what mattered to him. So he desperately talks about wanting to be popular. And because of this hunger, this insatiable hunger that he had to be popular, he hated the popular kids for having what he felt was so unattainable. He wrote that they all seem so confident and aggressive. I felt so intimidated by them and I hated them for it. I hated them so much because I had to. I had to increase my standing with them. I wanted to be friends with them. He didn't understand how all the pretty girls in the school liked the popular guys. He wrote, the popular guys were obnoxious jerks and yet somehow it was these boys who all the girls flocked to. This showed me that the world was a brutal place and that human beings were nothing more than just S-A-V-A-G-E animals. Everything my father taught me was proven wrong. He raised me to be a polite, kind gentleman in a decent world. That would be ideal. But the polite, kind gentleman doesn't win in the real world. The girls don't flock to gentlemen. They flock to the alpha male. They flock to the boys who appear to have the most power and status. Now, there was this one popular kid in school named Robert that Elliot was just so peeved by. Like, he writes so much about Robert. Like, if you read this whole manifesto, Robert is like a core character in his childhood. He he just, he writes, I didn't yet desire girls sexually, but I still felt envy towards them. Robert for being able to attract the attention of all the popular girls. What was so special about Robert Morgan? I constantly asked myself. The crazy thing is, Robert was actually a really nice kid who reached out to Elliot when Elliot was struggling to make friends. In fact, a lot of kids were nice to Robert. Girls that he thought were cute, like girls in general, they actually were quite nice to Elliot because they considered him like the cute shy guy. He wasn't like this weird kid. Girls were into him. Even during a school dance, a lot of girls offered to dance with him and some of them even taught him how to slow dance. So like he is getting interactions with girls but like, I don't, I don't even understand. Elliot wrote about it. He wrote, I had to place my hands on her hips while they placed their hands on my shoulders and we would move slowly with the music. They were all taller than me. I was terrified, but it felt so good. That would be the only time in my life where I would have satisfying experiences with girls. The only time. Literally no one bullied him. No one ignored him. No one was outwardly rude to him in school, but Elliot didn't care. He felt like an isolated cool kid. See, I think that's the problem with a lot of incel culture and I'm not knocking their feelings, but I do think a lot of the times they amp themselves up with these hypothetical situations of being rejected by women. And I'm sure that they faced rejection in their life, but there are a lot of good people out there. Like they just love to get off on these hypotheticals, I think. It's really strange. Even to a degree, Elliot knew that he was the problem. He wrote, I was treated nicely despite my reputation as the quiet kid, but I always felt like a loser compared to them and I hated them for it. But I still wanted their approval. I wanted to be one of them. I wanted to be their friend. 
but like no one's stopping him from being their friend. He's stopping him. He even wrote about how he got invited to all the cool kids' birthday parties, and one of the parties was at a skate park. Elliot got on the skateboard, and remember how he had practiced for like over a year? He was better than all the cool kids. He impressed them with his skills, and he even managed to turn this very positive event into something negative. He wrote, I hadn't even skateboarded for a while, but after a few minutes on the ramps, my ability came back like magic. They were all quite impressed. I bet they thought I would have ended up sucking at it. I was happy to prove them wrong. It's like, no one thought that. Like, it's such an odd attitude to have. Like, it seems like he's heavily projecting his own insecurities. He reminds me of those people where their car breaks down. They panic, call you, scream, cry about how this could have happened. Why me? Why today? How bad this is? And while they're crying, you fix all four of their tires. You get in the car and you're like, okay, we can drive off now. All the tires are fixed, but they refuse to even start the car. And they would rather sit on the side of the road crying about how they can't drive with four flat tires. And you're like, I literally, we fixed the problem. What's the big, what's going on? You just want to cry? Meanwhile, the only thing stopping them and Elliot is just yourself, your own mental state. Like what is going on? It's so strange. I don't even know what to call this type of behavior. Elliot also wrote about his first time viewing an image of a naked woman. And he wrote, one friend who I met through a chat room suddenly emailed me pictures of beautiful naked girls telling me to, quote, check this out. When I looked at the pictures, I was shocked beyond words. I had never seen what beautiful girls look like naked, and the sight filled me with such strong, overwhelming emotions. I didn't know what was happening to me. Was it the first inkling of sexual desire in my body? I was traumatized. My childhood was fading away. Ominous fear swept over me. I stopped talking to that friend. And then he went on to describe one of the most traumatic incidents of his entire life during summer camp. I'm going to sum it up for you, and plot twist, it's not that dramatic. So basically, he's hanging out with his friends because he has friends. He's not a loner, even though he wants you to believe he's a loner for some reason. He has friends. He's hanging out with them. And he accidentally is like uh, bumped into a girl behind him. Did not see her. She gets upset. She curses at him and kind of pushes him back in front of his friends. He was so upset about this. This was like trauma. Yeah, this guy is intense and it's scary. Like anyone I know could secretly be feeling this way, thinking this way, and I would never know. Like that's terrifying to me because like I said, most people are still nice to him. He just had this burning hatred for absolutely everyone and nobody even knew. Another pivotal moment in his life was when he was 12. He went to go see The Lord of the Rings in theater. Now, mind you, Elliot was like a movie buff. He loved movies, loved films. The movie theater is always this pleasant place for him. But he managed to even make this miserable. He wrote, The day marked the last time I would go to the movie theater with just my mother, except for premieres. Growing up, I always loved it when my parents took me to the movies. The large screen, the loud surround sound immersed me into the movie, and I liked that dizzy feeling I would get when I walked out of the movie theater and entered back into the real world. It was always a remarkable experience. Soon enough, the movie theaters would turn from a place of joy to a place of dread. Once puberty arrives, I would start getting jealous at all the young couples or groups of boys and girls who got to the movies together. That day that I saw the final Lord of the Rings movie was the last time I enjoyed the movie theaters in peace without fear of humiliation. Again, just so intense for what? When Elliot was 13, he had his first glimpse of porn and he said that he was disgusted, traumatized traumatized. He wrote, I had no idea what I was seeing. I couldn't imagine human beings doing such things with each other. The sight was shocking, traumatizing and arousing. 
All those feelings mixed together took a great toll on me. I walked home and I cried myself for a bit. I felt too guilty about what I saw to talk to my parents about it and I was quite shaken for a few days. This was among the very first glimpses I had of sex. Finding out about sex is one of the things that truly destroyed my entire life. Sex. The very word fills me with hate. I would always hunger for it. I would always covet it. I would always fantasize it. But I would never get it. This was a very, very dark day. And then just to add more trauma to this poor kid's life, his mom moved into an an apartment. (gasps) An apartment! Elliot said apartments are for poor people. He was so upset. He went as far as to stop hanging out with his friends because he was embarrassed that he lived in an apartment. Literally, his mom moving to an apartment was enough for him to ghost all of his friends. And he wrote about it as if he had no choice. He really writes about as if he is a victim for being in an apartment. Like, it's really hard to feel sympathy for child Elliot because, like, what? There are far worse things in this world than living in an apartment. It's so ridiculous. I... Part four, stuck in the void, ages 13 through 17. Elliot said that he was quite depressed and lonely during his teenage years. He just had this obsession with video games and he completely stopped caring about becoming popular. He was over it. He didn't even give a shit about school anymore. He went from being this quiet, shy kid to suddenly what he thought was the weird kid. He said he was bored at school. He would purposely act strange and annoying just to get attention. He would brag nonstop about how his mom was connected to George Lucas, who, you know, Star Wars. But the kids are like, Star Wars is for nerds. Yeah. So it's just a really weird situation to be in. And then Elliot had his first girl crush on a pretty blonde named Monet. And I guess for whatever reason, she allegedly teased him. He wrote angrily. She must have thought I was the ultimate loser. I hated her so much and I will never forget her. I started to hate all girls because of this. I saw them as mean, cruel, and heartless creatures that took pleasure from my suffering. I love that he hates all women because one girl in school made an unspecified comment. It could have been playful teasing for all we know. From this one single negative interaction, he extrapolated that all girls hated him. Hated. Okay, hated. And probably because Monet was blonde, blonde girls specifically despised him. Elliot also talked about how he would do weird, bizarre things to get attention in middle school, and he really hated it, but he felt like he never knew how to gain positive attention, and negative attention was better than being invisible. So he starts acting out, just actively doing kind of, quote, weird things to freak the other kids out, and he said that he got bullied in return. And the only place that he felt safe was when he was playing World of Warcraft. Which side note, Samaya and Peter would later go on to have a son named Jazz. So this is Elliot's half-brother and this is important later. But anyway, Elliot starts high school. He was so overwhelmed the first day that his dad pulled up to the high school to drop him off. He starts crying. And high school was miserable. He originally went to an all-boys school. He was constantly bullied. It wasn't even just harmless teasing anymore. He said that he was straight up being taunted. He allegedly had food thrown at him during lunch, but he was too scared to do anything about it. Kids called him the F-slur. He said that the popular kids picked on him for being weird. They would steal his things and make him run after them, and they got a kick out of it. He said that he hated everyone at that school so much, he would wait until the hallways were mostly cleared, and then he would run to his next class. And his only solace in life was to go home, play video games, and then he ejaculated for the first time. Okay. Okay. Just this is a load. Literally. It was during that winter break that I had experienced my first masturbation and ejaculation. It was one of the most 
peculiar and memorable experiences of my life. At this point, I was officially going through the stages of puberty, and I had lots of sexual urges. I often fantasized about hot, naked girls while rubbing my penis against my mattress at night. One time while doing this, I felt an intense, stirring numbness all around my fully erect penis, and it extended all over my body. It felt magical and ecstatic. I kept rubbing my penis on the mattress. That was when the orgasm happened. I couldn't believe how much pleasure I felt from that. I looked down at my penis to see that my semen had poured out all over it like a volcanic eruption of white, sticky fluid. What was happening to me? I thought to myself with nervous excitement. It was like nothing I'd ever seen or experienced before. Something completely out of this world. I felt really guilty afterwards, so I refrained from telling anyone about it. I started to masturbate on a regular basis. At first, I only did it by rubbing my penis on the bed, but it eventually escalated to looking at pictures of girls online while rubbing my penis against my pants, fantasizing about doing sexual things with them. I didn't know how to access any porn sites, so I would just browse regular websites until I found a picture of a hot girl to masturbate to. I developed a very high sex drive, and it would always remain like this. That was the start of hell for me. Even at that young age, I felt depressed because I wanted sex, yet I felt unworthy of it. I didn't think that I was ever going to experience sex in reality. And I was right. I never did. The boys in my grade talked about sex a lot. Some of them even told me they had sex with their girlfriends. This was the most devastating and traumatizing thing I've ever heard in my life. Boys having sex at my age of 14? I couldn't fathom it. How is it possible that they were able to have such intimate and pleasurable experiences with girls while I could only fantasize about it? I frequently started asking myself, this was an all-boys school. How in the hell did these boys even meet girls to have sex with? I wondered. I hoped that they were lying. I hoped against all hope. Hearing that really shook me to my core. Words cannot describe how much hatred and envy I felt for those boys. That hatred would only fester the more I suffered through my sexual starvation. I was too scared to tell anyone about it. And I hid it well, for a time. Yeah, so what's very strange is that Elliot would develop this very temperamental attitude towards anybody having sex. Like it really angered him that anyone else other than him would experience sex. Like listen to this incident during PE class. The very last day of ninth grade was the worst. I was having PE at the gym and one of my obnoxious classmates named Jesse was bragging about having sex with his girlfriend. I defiantly told him, I don't believe you. So he played a voice recording of what sounded like him and his girlfriend having sex. I could hear a girl saying his name over and over again while she panted frantically. He grinned at me. So smug. I felt so inferior to him and I hated him. It was at that moment that I I was called into the office. When I got there, my mom was waiting to take me home. I cried heavily as I told her about what happened earlier. That was the last day I ever set foot in Crespi Carmelite High School. So he begged his parents to be transferred to a bigger school. And he hated it even more because now he was going to a school where there were actual girls there. So he said, Some boys randomly pushed me against the lockers as they walked past me in the hall. One boy who was tall and had blonde hair called me a, quote, loser right in front of his girlfriends. Yes, he had girls with him, pretty girls. And they didn't seem to mind that he was such an evil bastard. In fact, I bet they liked him for it. This is how girls are, and I was starting to realize it. This is what truly opened my eyes to how brutal the world is. The most meanest and depraved of men come out on top, and women flock to these men. Their evil acts are rewarded by women, while the good, decent men are laughed at. It's sick. It's twisted. It's wrong in every way. I hated the girls even more than the bullies. 
The sheer cruelty of the world around me was so intense that I will never recover from the mental scars. Any experience I have ever had before never traumatized me as much as this. Okay. Elliot was so distraught from this incident that he begged his parents to transfer him to yet another new school, which they obliged, and he liked his new school much better. It was quiet, the, the schedule was good, he would rush home from school to um, choke the chicken, tickle the pickle, buff the banana, fiddle the flesh flute, varnish the pole, grease the pipe, hold the old sausage hostage. You get it. He started masturbating really frequently when he was 16, and this is when his, quote, sex drive was at a peak. He wrote, Whenever I got home from school, I had to masturbate. The urge was too strong. During my masturbation sessions, I often built elaborate fantasies in my mind that I had a hot, blonde-haired girlfriend to have passionate sex with, almost like an imaginary girlfriend. I told no one about this. In fact, I didn't talk to my parents at all about my sexual development. I felt too guilty. So after his daily handshake, he would spend the rest of the day just indulging in World of Warcraft or Halo 2. He would log on with his friends. Yeah, he had friends, okay? But then there was more trauma. Look, again, I'm not trying to invalidate a child's feelings because he was a child when these events allegedly took place, but he wrote about this as an adult. And for me, I don't know. Like, I understand childhood trauma has probably shaped me, but I also know that my specific childhood trauma which is kind of on par like it's trauma it's growing pains but it's not the end of the world like I did not suffer some injustice this crazy abuse like it's kind of crazy like his whole attitude towards his trauma he very much has a victim mentality anyway he said he went to a dinner party with his dad and Samaya and there were a bunch of other kids there there was this one boy who was 12 years old, so he was four years younger than Elliot at the time, who was 16. There was girls around his age, and they were just the embodiment of everything he hated about girls. You know, just fun, popular kids. Now, at the end of the night, the kids all snuck off from the parents, and Leo, the 12-year-old, started making out with one of the 16-year-old girls. A 12-year-old is making out with a 16-year-old girl, and Elliot wrote, They made out for a long time. I could see them tongue kiss. They knew that I was watching with envy, and they still did it. I bet that lucky bastard took great satisfaction from my envy. There I was, watching a boy four years younger than me experience everything that I've longed for, to kiss a girl, to be worthy of a girl's attraction. On that day, I developed a vicious hatred for Leo that would never go away. Later, the girls started talking about parties and all these friends that they had, and Elliot was on the side having a full-blown breakdown. He started scream crying in front of everyone. Yeah, he just hated that he would never have that life. He also threatened to commit suicide in front of the whole dinner party, so the parents had to talk to him for like hours to try and cheer him up. All of this led to him just feeling more and more inferior. He started questioning why he was condemned to suffer such misery. Like, what was wrong with him compared to all the other boys who were experiencing these things? I don't know, dude. Maybe it's your sheer hatred for women. That tends to be a turnoff. It's so weird because I'm trying to think, like, for the whole time, I'm trying to see, oh, where is the pinpoint of how yes. he become this way? But it seems as if he's always had the similar mentality ever since he's young. Yeah. Common theme is he never thinks there's something wrong with him. He never thinks, oh, I am the problem here. I didn't do this. That's why I was treated this way. Or my action leads to... He thinks it's always the circumstances makes him not popular or attractive or this and that. Yeah. But what's interesting is that a lot of people say that is the problem with the incel community is that they 
don't realize that their current status in life is temporary and they don't realize that they can change things. Yeah. So it's very interesting that he started like that ever since he was born. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the incel community, that's like one of the key principles is that nothing can be changed. And that mentality seems like it's been deep rooted Mm -hmm. since the very beginning for him, at least. It sounded like he's always had that victim mentality, like you said. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Do you think some people are like born with that? Because the other, his siblings, they're all fine. Mm -hmm. You know, his parents seem to be very successful and Mm well-loved. It's just very strange. Yeah. Truly, again, the whole thing, like, I just don't know how not self-aware this guy is. Because almost immediately afterwards, he writes about going on vacation in France with a buddy of his. Like, this is privileged, peak privileged activity. He bragged about how they had a layover in Germany. So he could add Germany to the list of countries that he had visited before very obsessed he was also very into um proving that he was a cultured kid he said that he loved france he loved these three weeks he hung out with max his french friend and they had all these friends in france they would go out drinking because the legal drinking age is 16 he felt like he finally had a taste of what life was like for most normal young people but that's the thing if you can do it in france you can do it at home there's just something that you're doing to prevent yourself from having it Like, things don't really just change in France. Maybe it's your mental state where you feel more free and less judged. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. Like, it's just Mm -hmm. so weird, right? But everything went to shit when Max started telling him about his sexual escapades that he's had. So I guess they were, like, up one night talking. And Max was telling him, like, oh, I had, like, sex with these girls, blah, blah, blah. You know how, like, little boys are, I guess. And the more he talked about it... Elliot just got so mad, just so mad. He started to feel so lonely and humiliated. And even at the next party that they had, he was introduced to one of the girls that Max had previously had sex with. And he just started fucking hating Max for being rich, for owning a mansion in the French countryside. And he said, and I quote, Where's the justice, I thought. Why couldn't I have been born into that life? I envied Max so much. His life must have been heaven on earth. Despite my envy of Max... I couldn't hate him. I wonder how people like him thinks when there's other way more unfortunate yes. people who's overcome their circumstances and become, quote, successful in his eyes. Like, what's his excuses then? Probably they were born hot. No, they're not. Like, obviously, you can look at the photos, for example. What's his excuses then? Yeah, what are incels' excuses for conventionally unattractive men having, you know, I guess conventionally attractive wives? Because I see a lot of that. Yeah, and they're not even successful. Like I'm not saying like movie stars. I'm just saying just in regular life. What's their excuse? I guess maybe they're like they've been bamboozled. The girls are so dumb. They've been tricked. I don't know. It's very bizarre. Yeah, but he said that he couldn't hate Max because he was the only popular person who ever reached out to me. He invited me to visit his home and treated me like a friend. For that, I will always have a grudging respect for Max. I'm just so confused. I'm the type of person who's hyper aware of what I put in my body. I have a lot of food intolerances and it feels like every year I discover new ones. If you have allergies or IBS or you choose to avoid certain foods for personal reasons, you know the food FOMO is real and it's just not fun. A month ago, we went to Jeju Island, which is famous for pork, but because I'm allergic, I was just standing there watching everyone gobble up the food. And recently, I almost gave up morning coffee because I'm so sensitive to dairy these days and black coffee just does not hit the spot. Thankfully, I found out about minor figures and now I don't have to start my days on a bitter 
note. Literally, Minor Figures is an oat milk brand. They're 100% plant-based, carbon neutral, and B Corp certified. So not only do I get to enjoy my coffee, but I don't have to worry about anything irritating my stomach. There are no stabilizers or additives. And what I love is that Minor Figures Barista Oat really helps showcase the natural characteristics of the coffee. It's not just there to carry the coffee flavor, but it enhances it. So you know how at-home coffee never hits the spot like coffee shop coffee? With Minor Figures, it does. You can really taste the coffee versus the oat milk. It's delicious. You can buy their products online at us.minorfigures.com. You can also discover fun games, music playlists, and explore their store locator to see where you can buy Minor Figures near you. For my listeners in Denver and New York, Minor Figures is also now available at Whole Foods. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food food. That's why Farmer's Dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human-grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh, healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean, my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder so I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months the farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned ready-to-serve packs which is super convenient all you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog and they'll deliver personalized vet developed recipes for as little as two dollars a day and you can adjust the recipe selection portion sizes and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. So overall, the trip was a good time. Elliot was depressed when he got home. And he said that, um, yeah, after a taste of what life was truly like for normal people and realizing that once he got home, he would never have that life, he felt haunted. And he went back to his routine of World of Warcraft, which even World of Warcraft became miserable because of what Elliot called normies were coming into the game. So this is around the time that World of Warcraft got super popular and a bunch of just regular young kids that aren't really gamers, they started hopping on and playing and... It was just ruining his safe space. He said that these people would use the word virgin to insult other guys who were even better at the game than them. <laughs> he wrote, I can't stand to play WOW. Wow, WOW, World mm-hmm. of Warcraft. Knowing that my enemies, the people I hate and envy so much for having sexual lives, were now playing the same game as me. What? Yeah. What? And he goes on a whole rant about how they're playing the same game and he just can't stand it and it's just further injustice and he just began to have these fantasies of becoming very powerful and stopping everyone from having sex. He said, I wanted to take all their sex away from them just like how they took it away from me. 
I saw sex as an evil and barbaric act, all because I was unable to have it. This was a major turning point. My anger made me stronger inside. This is when I formed my ideas that sex should be outlawed. It's the only way to make the world a fair and just place. If I can't have it, I will destroy it. He tried to make himself feel better by saying that, um... He was starting to realize that just because he was rejected from sex does not mean that he's insignificant. In fact, he said, I have an exceptionally high level of intelligence. I see the world differently from everyone else. <laughs> Which side note, around this time, Elliot's dad released his documentary called Oh My God, where Peter would go around the world asking people, what is God to you? He thought it was brilliant, moving, insightful, but the world disagreed. Who thought it was? Peter? Mm-hmm. Okay. The dad. Peter lost a ton of money in the documentary, and Elliot, of course, made it about himself. He wrote, could things get any worse from me? <laughs> What a bitter coincidence that right at the time that my life fell even deeper into agony, my father is cursed with his financial crisis. Victim, victim, victim. Yeah, right at the wow. time when I needed my father's support the most, he lost all of his assets. It was as if some malevolent curse had been brought with bad luck. I truly had no advantage at all. The universe was not kind to me. And then the guy graduates high school, becomes depressed again when he realized that he has no life plan. And his whole thing was that he just wanted to amass power as he got older so that he could create a society where sex was outlawed. But then he came to the realization that his chance to rise to power and, quote, right the wrongs of the world were extremely thin. He had no money. He had no power, right? It was just very bizarre. Part five, hope and hopelessness, age 17 through 19. So Elliot continued into adulthood being a whiny man-child. He read about how miserable his life was because he was underprivileged, which is just fucking laughable. Like, he had nannies growing up, he got to travel, he could have all the clothes and toys, electronics that he wanted, but he wanted more money. He realized that money does indeed bring power in this society, and specifically power brings sex, question mark? So that's why he was so fixated on money. And even more interesting is that instead of working or using his parents' connections to find a job, he decided that he was going to spend thousands of dollars of his parents money on lottery tickets hmm. yeah oh yeah he was just obsessed he felt thrilled with the prospect of having a chance to become a multi-millionaire he spent thousands of dollars he even read about the law of attraction so he started walking around the park envisioning himself winning the lottery manifesting it like he would do this for hours on hours on hours and he would never won that just added to his unjustifiable anger towards the universe that nothing worked in his favor <laughs> like, now the universe wow yeah. so speaking of going on walks elliot's way of trying to make friends is very threatening like he literally wrote in his manifesto if i don't make friends i'm gonna kill everyone like that's pretty much what he was threatening in his manifesto so you're like okay well how is he trying to make friends he would go on walks around the neighborhood in hopes that girls would just like start taking off their shirts and throw themselves at him basically. But they never did because nobody does that. Sometimes he would go to Barnes and Nobles and just hope that someone his age would reach out to him. But they never did because I don't know, people are shy, they're anxious, there's a thing called social anxiety, or maybe they're just kind of busy. Like I would hardly call that putting yourself out there, but he was so upset so he starts studying at a local college, Pierce College, and he's not making any friends, nor is he interacting with anyone because he didn't really put in the effort. He wanted them to all come to him. He literally hated women for not coming to him and talking to him. And then somewhat good news. He found out that his mom was dating a wealthy businessman worth about $500 million. He kept pressuring wow. his mom to marry the man. All he cared about was having a stepfather, 
that was rich. He said, when I found out about this, I started to harbor the hope that my mother will marry this man and I will be a part of a rich family. That will definitely be my way out of a miserable and insignificant life. Money would solve everything. I started to frequently ask my mother to seek marriage with this man or any wealthy man for that matter. She always adamantly refused and demanded that I stop talking about it. She told me that she never wanted to marry again after her experience with my father. I told her that she should sacrifice her well-being for the sake of my happiness. But this only offended her further. Wow. Which, side note, Elliot went to the Hunger Games premiere in 2012, and he saw a bunch of rich kids with their parents at the premiere, and that just, like, really pissed him off, which is ironic because he's one of those kids. <laughs> like, he has no association except for that his dad worked on the Hunger Games, and he's, like, basically a Nepo baby. <laughs> and he writes... They grew up in lavish mansions, indulged in excessive opulence, and will never have to worry about anything in their pleasurable, hedonistic lives. I would take great pleasure in watching all those rich families burn alive. Looking at all of them really drilled in my mind the importance of wealth. Wealth is one of the most important defining factors of self-worth and superiority. I hated and envied all those kids for being born into wealth while I had to struggle for a way to claim wealth for myself. <laughs> also he wrote about how he walked down the red carpet at the hunger games premiere and the paparazzi yelled at him a few times to get out of the way because i don't know maybe jennifer lawrence was coming through and he wrote that he was yelled at to get of get out of the way for some quote cunt actress he wrote elliot roger will not move aside for a stupid good for nothing over glorified actress whoever the fuck she was i didn't see so anyway Elliot's mom started hosting these big parties in her new boyfriend's Malibu beach house. And at one of those parties, Elliot ran into his only and first female friend, Maddie Humphreys. Remember her? Mm. Well, Elliot was pissed because she was a cool girl now. And oh my God, she went to USC. Elliot had beef with USC. He called USC the University of Spoiled Cunts. It's a private school. He was upset that she had the audacity to be smart, beautiful, and popular. And... <gasps> She brought her boyfriend. He yelled at his mom after the party for being inconsiderate of him by letting Maddie bring her boyfriend, which is just so strange. He also complained about how this Malibu beach house would have been perfect to bring a girlfriend, but no girl would ever want to date him. Yeah. The ironic thing is that if somehow Elliot did magically get popular and got everything he wanted, he absolutely would treat the quote uncool nerdy kids like trash. Like he strikes me as the type to be rude to staff because he's above them. How do I know this? It's in his manifesto. His mom suggested that he get a part-time retail job and he wrote, the thought of myself doing that was mortifying. It would be completely against my character. I'm an intellectual who is destined for greatness. I would never perform a low-class service job. His entitlement just truly never ceases to amaze me. He started seeing all these young couples at this Malibu beach house and he was just so disgusted. He said that sex is evil and this cemented in his mind that sex gives too much pleasure to those who don't even deserve sex. He wrote about even seeing couples at Barnes and Noble strolling around the store holding hands. Sometimes, oh my God, they would sit and read together and even share a kiss. He said, whenever I saw this, I got so overcome with envy and heartbreak, I would rush to the bathroom to cry. He said on campus, he would see couples walking around together and he wrote, to watch another boy experience it with a beautiful girl who should be mine was a living hell. I constantly asked myself what I did wrong in life to be unable to have a beautiful girlfriend. 
Yeah, so this full-grown adult would cry anytime he saw people in love, would cry in rage, throw temper tantrums, knowing that others were having relationships that he wasn't. At one point, because of all of his time at Barnes & Noble's, Elliot decided that he wanted to be an author. He wrote that he could easily write an epic novel and become a millionaire. Yeah, because it's very easy to do that. But he realized that most successful authors write for decades before they amass any wealth. And he wrote, I didn't want to wait until I was 40 years old to lose my virginity. The thought of spending the next 20 years working hard every day for a chance to make a million or two filled me with revulsion. By the time I'd become a millionaire from doing that, I wouldn't even be able to get hot young girls anymore because I'd be too old. He abandoned his idea of being an author when he realized that he wouldn't be rich tomorrow. And it was at this low point in his life that Elliot decides to pick fights with some of the kids that he knew at school. Oh, and then apparently there was this one incident where he picked a fight with someone that he knew at school and he said the most hurtful thing to him ever, which was, and I quote, no girl in this whole world is ever going to want to fuck you. Yeah. Elliot says, I always felt that no girl in the whole world wanted to fuck me. I was a kissless virgin after all. He deadass said being a kissless virgin is the reason that he's suffering forever. Again, I'm sure it's hard, but this sounds like the script of a really, really bad coming-of-age movie. Like, of the villain. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like, okay, it's not that serious. And the crazy thing is, Elliot's not even 19 yet. A lot of people don't start dating until their 20s or 30s, and I don't even know what the big deal is. Like, just chill out. Now, in college, there was a couple that he started fixating on. He watched them interact every single day, and it just filled him with rage. Just seeing them blissfully exist him filled him with rage. He even dropped that class because he was so angry seeing them happy in class together. He couldn't hold down a job because he hated the idea of doing, like, menial labor jobs. He said that it was degrading, and... (laughs) He was owed better in life. He straight up was confused if one of his friends didn't feel the same way about women. So he had this friend named James, who's a virgin too. And he did not get any attention from girls, just like Elliot. Elliot didn't want to be his friend anymore because James didn't hate women. He said, I was very perplexed as to why he didn't feel any anger towards women for denying him sex. He should be just as angry as I am. I suppose he doesn't have a very high sex drive. Or maybe he's just generally a very weak person. (laughs) To be angry about the injustices one faces is a sign of strength. It's a sign that one has the will to fight back against those injustices rather than bowing down and accepting it as fate. Does anyone actually think like this? I mean, I guess there are, and that's terrifying. So even if Elliot was lying or exaggerating everything in his manifesto, I think what's terrifying is there are still guys out there that read this and believe that everything he's saying is correct and that he has this unfiltered view of humanity and society as a whole. The fact that he hated women because he couldn't own them and make them do what he wanted is an incredibly terrifying sentiment. Yeah, it's like when um sometimes these alpha males go off on... <laughs> literally lose their minds go off on their rockers at the idea of a gold digger using up all their money until they're bankrupt i mean they get so passionate at this hypothetical situation but meanwhile nobody is using their money and a lot of the times they don't have the money to be used so it's like i don't know it's just this crazy insatiable anger that they develop over hypotheticals and they keep victimizing themselves and really villainizing a whole group of people who generally don't think like that. I don't know what it is, why they get off on it. And it's clear that Elliot still, at the end of the day, wanted a girlfriend. He did. So, for example, he's strolling down Malibu Beach when a girl walks by and he wrote, 
She was like a goddess who came down from heaven. She was walking alone in her bathing suit and her luscious blonde hair was blowing in the wind. I couldn't help but slyly admire her beauty as we passed each other. I was scared that she might view me as nothing but an inferior insect whose presence ruins her atmosphere, but her beauty was intoxicating. And then, just as we passed each other, she actually looked at me. She looked at me and smiled. Most girls never even look at me. And this one looked at me and smiled. One smile was all it took to brighten my entire day. The power that beautiful women have is unbelievable. This is so freaking bizarre. Yeah, and Just he... Just say hello. Like, be a normal person. <laughs> yes. Like, he didn't even try to talk to her. Yeah. How would he know that she wouldn't want to date him and thinks that he's an inferior insect in her atmosphere? And if she didn't want to talk to him, maybe there would be someone else. Like, it's really not that serious. So Elliot's parents, they start picking up on these clues and they're like, okay, we're kind of a little bit worried about you. Not because we think you hate women, because he hid that pretty well, but uh, you're not really doing anything with, with your life. So why don't we try to get you to spread your own wings? <laughs> this guy complains about being underprivileged. Just keep that in mind. They offered to get Elliot his own place so he didn't have to live with his mom anymore. They would pay for the rent. They would pay for his car. They would pay for all the allowances. And Elliot said that he didn't even want to live in LA anymore. He wanted to live in Santa Barbara. Why? Because he watched a movie called Alpha Dog and there was a lot of sex in that movie and it takes place in Santa Barbara. So Elliot figured everyone in Santa Barbara was having sex. So maybe someone would have sex with him. He applied to UCSB, got in, his parents paid the hefty tuition. His parents gave him about $1,000 a month for rent. The car paid for allowances and expenses. I mean, this kid literally spent thousands of dollars on lottery tickets. So he was... Like, this guy has it set for his life. I mean, Jesus Christ, stop with the emotional dramatics. Like, put the little diary down and go touch some grass, Elliot. Like, I'm getting frustrated. He goes to UCSB. He's mesmerized. It's a beautiful California beach town. He said that it was um, pretty blonde girls everywhere. It was better than what he had ever imagined. And he said this was it. His only chance at getting the life he desired. A life full of sex, friends, and acceptance. He wrote that he would never forgive the world. So far, for what the world has done to him, the, the rejection, you know, he deserved better than that. He said, I'm an intelligent gentleman, and I deserve the love of girls more than the other obnoxious boys of my age, and yet they get the girls and I don't. I don't know, I would say that this whole manifesto, like literally word by word, is one of the most obnoxious things I've ever read, so... He says, this is a crime that can never be forgotten, nor can it be forgiven. I always wanted to exact my revenge on humanity for forcing me to live such a life, but... He said Santa Barbara was a chance that he was giving to the world to make his life better or else he would seek revenge. Unfortunately, Elliot would not be kidding. It was not just a journal entry. He took it very seriously and he intended to act out on his promise. Part 6. Santa Barbara, Endgame, ages 19 through 22. Elliot was hit with trauma the first night in his apartment. Yes, his new life was exciting in Santa Barbara. He was nervous for everything it had to offer, but it was all ruined because he could hear the neighbors having sex through the walls his very first night, and it wasn't fair that other young men were getting to experience what he so desired. The rest of the first week was equally devastating, so two of his roommates brought over a friend named Chance. Elliot wants everyone to know that Chance is black, and Chance was talking about sex. Elliot was pissed. He turned to his roommates and asked, "'Are you virgins?' His two roommates looked at him like, what the hell is wrong with you? We're in college. Like, yeah, we're not virgins anymore. We lost our virginities when we were like 14 in high school. Chance said he lost it when he was 13 with a blonde girl. 
which is Elliot's dream, of a dream girl. And Elliot stormed into his room and proceeded to scream cry into his pillow for hours. Side note, when I say he threw little tantrums, I mean it. He wrote that he would get blinded with rage, cry, scream, and slash his pocket knife around in the air, down entire bottles of wine, and break his own things like his laptop. He then went on to write a very racist rant in his manifesto. So yeah, the guy has like no redeeming qualities. And it's not shocking that nobody was interested in an intimate relationship with him because he's literally scum of the earth. He wrote, How can an inferior ugly black boy be able to get a white girl and not me? I am beautiful and I am half white myself. I am descended from British aristocracy. He is descended from slaves. I deserve it more. I tried not to believe his foul words, but they were already said, and it was hard to erase from my mind. If this was actually true, if this ugly black filth was able to have sex with a blonde white girl at the age of 13 while I've had to suffer virginity all of my life, then this just proves how ridiculous the female gender is. They give themselves to this filthy scum, but they reject me? The injustice. Females truly have something mentally wrong with them. Their minds are flawed, and at this point in my life, I'm beginning to see it. This guy is so easily traumatized, I don't even know what to say. Oh, and don't worry, Elliot is not just racist towards black people. He doesn't discriminate like that. The guy has morals. He's racist towards Hispanic people as well. He said he was disappointed to find out that his new roommates were Hispanic because they were both beneath him. He called them, quote, rowdy low-class types. And he was upset that these, quote, rowdy low-class types had sex and he hadn't. Elliot said compared to his, his Hispanic roommates, he was a beautiful, magnificent gentleman and they were a low-class, pig-faced, quote, T-H-U-G-S. He also claimed that they were insulting him by letting him know that they were going to get laid that weekend. He wrote, I wanted to kill them both. Okay, so he answered my question. When he meets someone who probably come from not as oh. fortunate situation as him. Having sex. Having sex, he just want to kill them. Yeah, he wants to kill them. Okay. He thinks they don't deserve it. So he wants to kill everyone. He wants to kill someone who's, yep. you know, like a Chad or someone he thinks that's not as, as attractive as him. Mm -hmm. He wants to kill everyone. Yeah, so he wants <laughs> to kill girls for having sex with who he deems unattractive and less attractive than him. But he also wants to kill girls because they like attractive men. <sighs> okay. And he, st he still claimed that he was trying to give US UCSB a good real try. He wanted a girlfriend, but um, he just kind of expected girls to like walk past him and swoon and drop to his knees. And if they didn't, he would run to the bathroom and scream cry for an hour. And he would literally scream, how dare she, that foul bitch. <laughs> what? Look, social anxiety is tough, but this is, this is bizarre. Now, Elliot claimed everyone hated him in college, but everyone that knew him disagreed. They said that he was just strange. Like, we invited him to parties and stuff, but he would just get blackout drunk and just throw up everywhere and then leave. Like, it was really weird. He didn't try to get to know us. But the incel king actually starts with Starbucks lattes. You're like, what? So there were a few incidents that display Elliot going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole with unfiltered rage and just pure dripping hatred. It all started with Starbucks. Yeah, I know. Incel and Starbucks, an unexpected combination. But Elliot loved his lattes. It's a morning ritual for him. Grab a latte before his long, grueling day of hating the world. For not having women fall naked at his feet in pure adoration and devotion, he had to fuel up on caffeine before he could channel that type of anger. So he's at Starbucks. And, um, okay, I'll let him tell it. I ordered my coffee, sat down at one of the chairs to relax. A few moments later, when I look up from my drink, I saw a young couple standing in line. They were kissing passionately. The boy looked like an obnoxious punk. He was tall and wore baggy pants. And the girl 
was a pretty blonde. They looked like they were in the throes of passionate sexual attraction to each other, rubbing their bodies together and tongue-kissing in front of everyone. I was absolutely livid with envious hatred. When they left the store, when they left Starbucks, I followed them to their car and splashed my coffee all over them. The boy yelled at me and I quickly ran off in fear. I was panicking as I got to my car and drove off, shaking with rage-fueled excitement. I felt a small sense of spiteful gratisfaction for doing so. I just hated them so much. But even though I splashed them with my coffee, he was still the winner. He was going to go home to have passionate, heavenly sex with his beautiful girlfriend, and I was going to go home to my lonely room to sleep alone in my lonely bed. I had never felt so miserable and mistreated in my life. So this guy throws a Starbucks, like, throws coffee over a random unsuspecting couple, and then he writes in his manifesto, I have never felt so mistreated in my life. I curse the world for condemning me to such suffering. Yeah, he said that he wants to kill all young couples because they deserve it. The males deserve it for taking the females away from him, and the females deserve it for choosing those males instead of him. And that is just what he's fantasizing about. But then it happens again. One day, Elliot is driving home from school with his Starbucks latte and his cup holder with his paid-for car by his parents, and he witnesses two hot blonde girls waiting at the bus stop. And so he stops by, slows down in his car, and he smiles at them. And they look at him, but they don't really smile back. Maybe they didn't know that he was smiling. Maybe it's just, like, weird, okay? Girls are kind of on edge in public. They, it's not because they think you're scum of the earth and inferior. It's like you just never know when someone is very aggressive. So they just kind of looked away. He felt so infuriated, he drove away, drove around, came back to them, U-turned, splashed his Starbucks latte all over them. He said, how dare those girls snub me? How dare they insult me so? I raged to myself. They deserve the punishment I gave them. It was such a pity my latte wasn't hot enough to burn them. These girls deserve to be dumped in boiling water for the crime of not giving me the attention and adoration I rightfully deserve. He was a serial Starbucks latte thrower. And an orange juice squirter. You're like, what? Okay, so one time he was going through the park and he stumbles across these popular kids, right? And he just really was so annoyed. These guys were hanging out and they were the picture of what he hated. And guys, they were jocks. And around them were this like flock of beautiful blonde girls. And they were just having such a fun time. One of the girls was doing a handstand in her in the grass. And her sexy bare stomach showed as her shirt hung down. And all the girls were wearing like scantily clad clothes clothes and Elliot was just boiling with rage the rage was so intense that he drove to the nearby Kmart bought a super soaker like a water gun and filled it with sticky orange juice and started aiming it at them at the park and literally ruined all of their clothes and their whole day and then ran to his car before they could beat him down and drove off he said they deserved to die horrible painful deaths just for the crime of enjoying a better life than me so July of 2011, Elliot turns 20, and he's really upset by this because this marked the two full decades that he had gone without sex. Bro, calm down. Nobody's having sex, like, for two full decades when they're 20. His parents took him to this fancy restaurant to celebrate, and he even managed to turn that into yet another oh depressing spectacle. He wrote, Delicious food was the only vice I was able to enjoy since I was deprived of sex. Just enjoy your filet mignon and shut up, bro. Also, side note, Elliot wrote a lot in his manifesto around this time at UCSB. He was completely friendless and everyone hated him, which side note, this is very different from his childhood where he did have friends, but it's also because Elliot was an asshole. Like he had to switch apartments multiple times because his roommates despised him. For example, 
He had a roommate named Spencer, who was shorter than Elliot. And according to Elliot, Spencer was uglier than Elliot. And Elliot said, I was a bit shocked when Spencer told me he used to have a girlfriend. It was a casual comment that came out of a conversation we had, and I didn't understand how a chubby and unattractive guy like Spencer would have been able to get a girlfriend while I've never had the chance to. The guy is three inches shorter than me, and even I'm considered short for my age. I could not fathom how such a thing was possible, and I concluded to myself that his former girlfriend must have been just as unattractive as he was, so there was no need for me to be jealous. After a few weeks with him, I realized that I had a psychological problem with his presence in the apartment. He knew how pathetic my life was. I could hide it for the world, but I couldn't hide it from him. A few weeks later, Elliot comes home and he finds that Spencer had a girl in his room, right? And this felt really unjust to Elliot. He felt like Spencer is uglier, shorter, less attractive. How can he have a girl in his room before Supreme Gentleman Elliot had a girl in his room? So he waited, seething in anger until the girl left and he took a good look at that girl and he was very happy with himself because the girl was not conventionally attractive. And what does he do? He straight up walks up to Spencer after the girl leaves and goes, you shouldn't be proud to have such an ugly whore in your room. So that roommate situation did not work out. Literally, the guy was a horrible person and nobody wanted to be friends with him for that reason. Meanwhile, he's like, why does nobody want to be friends with me? Elliot wrote that what he truly needed in life was a girlfriend. He said he needed a girl's love to feel worthy as a male. And it was all the girl's fault that no one wanted to be his girlfriend. Yeah. Apparently, if he just had a girlfriend, all of his problems would go away. So I don't know what his deal is. And then Elliot enters what I like to call his Delulu era. Like he just straight up becomes delusional. He believed not only was it fucked up that nobody was throwing themselves at him, but he was upset because he was perfect. So this is when he is like, no, 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 I'm perfection. So they're really crazy for not wanting me. He thought if he told himself these affirmations and got confident, girls would just fawn over him. So he literally kept telling himself in the mirror that he was the supreme gentleman. Anyway, this is where things get dark. He goes and buys guns, goes to a gun shop, spent thousands of dollars on guns, and he wrote in his manifesto, who's the alpha male now, bitches? And in spring of 2013, Elliot had kind of an okay period. He had counselors who were basically paid by his parents to meet up with him in coffee shops to just talk to him about how life is going. One of them was an attractive blonde woman, and Elliot said that he liked spending time with her until... Afterwards, he would remind himself that she was paid to be there. And that is why a lot of incels are very against um, getting sex workers to lose their virginity. Because he says, I imagine it temporarily feels good for the moment, but afterward, it makes one feel like a pathetic loser for having to hire a girl when other men could get the experience for free. Maybe this is too personal of a question, but what was, um, what was your feelings towards virginity as a kid, like as a guy? Just a normal feeling. Nothing like this extreme, negative, like toxic. and. But it's not like this crazy, all-encompassing. No. It's just like if it no. happens, it happens type of... Yeah, I mean, I can't think of anything weird. Because yeah. I do think, you know, virginity is complex. You know, girls go through the feeling of, oh, what if I make a mistake? It's like something I can never get back. I'm like giving it away, right? There's like that weird rhetoric around it. Like, I'll be less worthy if I give it away. I get it. It's complex. But this is like a level that I don't understand. Yeah. This is just very strange. Anyway, so Elliot would go home a lot more and started spending time with his half-brother, Jazz, who's like eight or nine years old. And Jazz really, really looked up to Elliot, like any little boy would. That's his older brother. Like, think about it. You're eight or nine and your brother's in college. Mm -hmm. Like, this is probably, wow, this this guy is so cool. I want to be just like him when I grow up. But of course, Elliot twisted it into something negative. He wrote, 
I like to watch Jazz play in the playground at these parks because those were the exact same playgrounds I played in when I was his age, when my life was actually happy. As I watched him, I dreamed about how happy life I used to, I used to live before my whole world turned to darkness. But then I realized how much different my brother, Jazz, was from me at that age. While I was shy, short, and physically weak, Jazz was tall for his age and very social. He had no problem going up to other boys at the playground and instantly making friends. I began to form a bitter envy towards Jazz, though I hid it very well. My little brother had all the potential to grow up to be a popular kid and live the life that I was never able to live. I cursed the world for granting my little brother, Jazz, so many more advantages than me. Thankfully, Elliot did keep his disdain to himself, largely due to how affectionate and how good Jazz was. Like, Jazz was honestly such, like, a happy kid, it seems. And uh, keep Jazz in mind, because Elliot would want to kill Jazz later. Elliot decided to give the world one last chance, as he puts it, by attending a big party. This was his last-ditch attempt to lose his virginity before turning 22. He's like, if I lose my virginity now, I will be happy. He wrote, I was giving the female gender one last chance to provide me with the pleasures I deserved from them. Like, you really cannot make this shit up. What's interesting, I find, yeah. is I don't think, like, virginity is his problem. Like, no. for let's say for some miracle, he got a girlfriend. I can see a million ways, just by the way he thinks about the world. There's going to be a million problems he's going to have with this girl, with his life. I can see him turning... Abusive. Exactly. Like, like being or, so toxic. Or worse, because yeah. he thinks he's the victim all the freaking time. Yeah. Also, I think the psychology of a lot of these guys is that women are these gatekeepers of sex. When that's not true, that's just normal consent. Women go through the same thing with getting consent from their male partners. But in fact, I think women live a completely different life experience, which is the fact that they feel like this is something that they have that people are willing to take with brute force and strength without consent. And it's terrifying. So it's like really just... Anyway, he goes to a local house party in Santa Barbara and he's nervous. So he shows up drunk, like already downed a couple shots of vodka. And there were about 100 people at this party. Everyone is socializing and he's just walking around with this drunk confidence. And he was upset. No one's paying attention to him. Like he just wants to walk around and people are like, oh my God, who's that guy? Who's that guy? Let me go talk to him. Like, I don't know why. Okay. And he said that he saw girls talking to other guys who looked like obnoxious slobs, but nobody was paying him attention. And then, oh, he hit a boiling point. There was a full Asian guy talking to a white girl. He writes, that sight filled me with rage. I always felt as if white girls thought less of me because I was half Asian. But then I see this white girl at the party talking to a full-blooded Asian. I never had that kind of attention from a white girl. And white girls are the only girls I'm attracted to, especially the blondes. How could an ugly Asian attract the attention of a white girl while a beautiful Eurasian like myself never had any attention from them? I thought with rage. I glared at them for a bit and then decided I had been insulted enough. I angrily walked towards them and bumped the Asian guy aside, trying to act cocky and arrogant. My drunken state got the better of me and I almost fell over to the floor after a few minutes. So few minutes he's just bumping into the asian guy nonstop, and the asian guy is probably like what's wrong with this guy i don't know what's going on and they said something along the lines of like hey you're drunk you need to go get some water so they're still being very nice mm -hmm. and i angrily left them and went to the front yard where the main party was happening rage fumed inside of me as i realized that i just walked away from a confrontation so i rushed back into the house and spitefully insulted the asian before walking outside i stood awkwardly in the front yard for a bit realizing how pathetic I looked being alone. 
To calm down, I climbed up upon a wooden ledge that bordered the street and plunged down on one of the chairs there. So he's like kind of on a balcony. And from this balcony, he's looking out onto the street and he sees a bunch of hot guys walking around with a bunch of hot girls. And he gets so mad and he's drunk that he does finger guns at them. And he's like, pew, pew, pew. And he's like laughing. A few minutes later, a few of them jump onto the ledge close to him to sit down on the chairs nearby and just like hang out. But um, that just really, oh my God, he starts going crazy that they're socializing in front of him, next to him. So he gets up unsolicited, starts insulting them, insulting all of them. And at first they just kind of laugh because they know he's drunk and they insult him back. And that was the last straw. He starts trying to push them off the 10 foot ledge. And his main target were the girls. So he's like trying to grab the girls and push them off the fucking balcony ledge. He said he wanted to punish the girls for talking to these obnoxious boys instead of talking to him. Now, there was a bunch of guys there and they're like, oh my God, this like crazy guy is trying to push all of our girlfriends off the ledge. So what do they do? The guys gather together and they push him off the ledge. So Elliot tumbles down 10 feet and he says, when I landed, it felt like I snapped my ankle. I slowly got up and found that I couldn't even walk. I had to stumble and limp and I tried to get out of there as fast as I could. But as he's on his way back to his dorm, he realizes that his Gucci sunglasses are missing and he assumed that someone at the party had stolen them. So he limps back to get his Gucci sunglasses, which like, again, he's like, I'm so underprivileged. My Gucci sunglasses. He's so drunk. He doesn't even remember which house that he was partying at. So he ends up knocking at the wrong door and accusing these random dudes of jacking his Gucci sunglasses. So these guys are drunk too. I'm sure it's like a party city. You know, it's like party town, college campus. And these guys respond by calling Elliot names. Like, we didn't fucking steal your glasses. Get out of here, you weirdo. And they end up dragging him to the driveway and kind of jumping him, essentially like beating him up. He limped all the way home. And he said that it was the most humiliating moment of his life. Everyone in Isla Vista knew what had happened and it was horrific. And he says, and I quote, this is crazy. The worst part of this whole ordeal was not getting beaten up. Oh no. It was the fact that no one showed any concern. Not one girl offered to help me as I stumbled home with a broken leg, beaten and bloody. If girls had been attracted to me, they would have offered to walk me to my room and take care of me. They would have even offered to sleep with me to make me feel better. But no. Not one girl showed an ounce of concern for me. They didn't care. No one cared about me. I was all alone. You just tried to kill a bunch of girls. Elliot had to go to the hospital for his leg the next day. It was broken. He would need a cast and crutches, and he was looking at potential surgery. He was really upset. So for his 22nd birthday, he couldn't walk on his own. He was staying with his mom, and he was a virgin. It was the worst combination, he said. So this is when he starts really losing his shit. He was prescribed an antipsychotic drug and he refused to take it. And he just, he wrote about being back at his mom's house and about how his dad was talking to him about how Jazz just got signed by an agent to do TV commercials. And Elliot confirmed in him that Jazz was going to be a Chad. And he wrote, he will become a popular kid that gets all the girls. I decided I would have to kill him on the day of retribution. I will not allow the boy to surpass me at everything, to live the life I've always wanted. It's not fair. It's a hard thing to do because I had already bonded with my little brother in the last year and he respected and looked up to me, but I would have to do it. If I can't live a pleasurable life, then neither will he. I will not let him put my legacy to shame. In order to kill Jazz, I would have to kill Samaya too, his mom. That'll be easy. All I need to do is think about all the hurtful things she said to me in the past as I plunge my knife into her neck. But what if my father is in the house too? Would I have to kill him too? No, that would be too much. 
So while Elliot is now plotting the day of retribution, he's also living the life. His parents buy him a BMW 3 Series coupe. Yeah, and he loved it. He wrote, having a nicer car than most other students my age did indeed make me feel more confident. Mother should have bought this car for me when I first moved to Santa Barbara. Sounds like the script of like a really entitled villain. Like, mother should have bought this for me. It's like, what is going on? He got to planning. New Year's Day of 2014 comes around and he thought about how this would be his last year. And he starts posting manifesto-esque videos on YouTube, which didn't get a lot of views at the time. And they've since been taken down, but you can find some clips here and there. But generally speaking, he's talking about how women are evil and how he's the supreme gentleman. It's speculated that his mom saw these videos and reported him to the police because the police showed up at his door in Santa Barbara and they wanted to talk to him about these videos. He convinced them that these were YouTube skits. They were YouTube satire. It's just jokes. Now, if these police had searched his room, they would have found his guns and knives and maybe a draft or a copy of his manifesto. Who knows? Elliot's retribution began the evening of May 23rd. And by the way, the only thing that Elliot felt bad about his day of retribution is that he would have to die as well. So he had no plans on spending the rest of his life in prison and he wrote, people should feel sorry for me. That evening, Elliot lured three of his housemates into his apartment and stabbed them to death. They were all um, Chinese. 19-year-old George Chen, 20-year-old James Hong, and 20-year-old David Wang. It's speculated it's his anger of being Asian and that whole party situation with the Asian guy. He likely killed them separately and maybe even attempted to clean up a little bit so that the other roommates would be caught off guard when they walked in. He stabbed them to death. Then, Elliot went to a coffee shop, got himself a steaming hot cup of a latte, and around 8.30pm, he was seen working on his laptop in the car of the parking lot of his apartment building. I guess he didn't want to go inside. He posted his Elliot Rogers retribution video, which is still online, and it's basically a rehash of everything in his manifesto, but I'm going to play a little clip of it at the end, or I'll play it now. His voice, his cadence... It's so unsettling. It, he talks as if he's trying to play the part of a stereotypical villain in a kid's movie. It's very bone-chilling. Tomorrow is the day of retribution. The day in which I will have my revenge against humanity. Against all of you. After this, he sends a copy of his manifesto to his therapist, who sent it to his parents, who immediately start heading for Isla Vista and had called the, the police on the way. Meanwhile, Elliot was on his way to the Alpha Phi sorority house in USB, UCSB. He tried to knock on the front door for a while. Nobody opened. He gave up, looked around, shot at anyone he could find. Two women were killed. Catherine Brianne Cooper, who is 22, and 19-year-old Veronica Elizabeth Weiss. Elliot jumped into his car and started shooting at stores and pedestrians. He fired into an unoccupied coffee shop, and um, a 20-year-old man named Christopher Ross Michaels Martinez was struck several times and killed. Elliot proceeded to drive around town shooting at people. He shot at a couple exiting a pizza shop, a female cyclist. He didn't kill anyone else, thankfully, but he did injure 14 people. At this point, the cops are chasing him. Elliot gets a bullet to the hip, and he kept driving. He struck a cyclist um, in this police chase, and eventually he stopped the car, and the police found him with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his head. In his car were three pistols, knives, six empty 10-round magazines, and nearly 600 rounds of unspent ammunition, which, I mean, that's a lot of ammo. I think anytime I hear about, like, I know recently California is going through a lot. Um, anytime I hear about, like, mass shootings, I think one thing that always sticks with me, and I don't even know where, maybe I had read this somewhere, but 
you know, you think it's just like six lives lost, but then you think about their families, their friends, their coworkers, and it's just the crazy spider web effect of trauma and how this literally changes the brain chemistry of so many people, how it changes the lives of people. I mean, people will go on with an inability to understand humanity. They'll ask themselves why every day and to just have that effect on so many people. We don't even know how many victims really are in situations like this. How many lives are genuinely changed from a situation like this, from a mass murder like this, it's so heartbreaking to even imagine how many people's lives and how many victims there were to the Isla Vista killings. But there was more drama after this. So Elliot was, um, he was dead, so there's no trial. But remember how Not All Men was trending recently, maybe a year or two ago? Well, it was trending after what Elliot did. So men were trying to express that not all men were misogynistic and commit murder. Now, the hashtag was heavily criticized because understandably, how the hell are men managing to spin this onto themselves? So in response, yes, all women became trending to express that all women experience misogyny and sexism at one point or all parts of their lives. But unfortunately, you know how the story goes, that caused a lot of discourse, a lot of angry fights, and Elliot Roger is a hero in some parts of the incel community. There's even people selling Supreme Gentleman merch in reference to Elliot Roger. There are even people making edits of his video and pictures. Sadly, there's a group of men online that agree with what Elliot did and they celebrate him as a hero. These men, like Elliot, are virgin misogynists. But where do we go from here? Because creepily enough, incel culture is coming back and it's coming back even more mainstream. All these podcasts of men screaming into the microphone that women are gold diggers, that wives need to shut up and lose weight after giving birth to a baby because what do they bring to the table? What do they do? This is literally incel rhetoric just packaged up and sold as a high value man. And it's just crazy. There's like gender wars. Like what is going on? I think it's very terrifying for what the world has in store for us. I think it's very terrifying that there are male figures that people look up to that are essentially turning young, impressionable men against women. And they create these hypothetical situations just like the incel community. It's scary. What are your thoughts on this case? Please stay safe and I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.